Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and try to understand what they're talking about. I'm not going to um, introduce you. Like, you've got to introduce us. What am I here wow. for? Wow, that was... <laughs> I was so captivated by that that I, I was just expecting it to continue on. It was like listening to a BBC series that I forgot. But you didn't do the end, so I'll have to finish it off. He's Chris Kavanagh, an anthropologist. Hello. I'm Matthew Brown, psychologist. And with us, our guest on a very special Christmas special episode is Helen Lewis. Hello. Thank you for doing the introduction, Helen. I know. I am available for Barty's, Mar Mitzvah's, other podcast introductions. <laughs> Just call my agent. <laughs> so this was the agreed trade for you doing a series on gurus. Therefore, we, we stamp our approval in the series for the BBC. Yeah, that's... That's a reasonable triad. It's good. I was genuinely really worried when we pitched it and we got it commissioned. And then I did some Googling and I was like, oh dear, these are going to be crazy internet people who are going to be really angry and it's going to be a whole big deal. And then <laughs> it turned out you were the rarest of beasts, which was nice internet people who thought such a thing existed and you were very nice about uh -oh. it. Oh, oh, no, no, no. This has all been a setup, a faint where now it's the, like, this is our Christmas special of sorts. So this is the airing of grievances segment helen boy do we have a lot of grievances reviewer series uh, no, right. helen you you wandered onto our turf we'd stake this out we, we have various patents covering <laughs> all of the gurus and ideas no no um i've only Matt heard the sent marked all over this place <laughs> all of the gurus just weed all around brett weinstein no one's no one's coming near that yeah. <laughs> he's mine now that's right um, <laughs> No, but congratulations, Helen, on The New Gurus, this series you've created for Radio 4, for the BBC. You know, you're catering to the normie audience, which is great. You know, it's good that that sector has been um, taken care of. But I think Chris mentioned that you deliberately avoided consuming too much of our content, or even any, so as not to be influenced or prejudiced by us and maybe came to similar conclusions. How would you describe that? Yeah, I think that's very true. I did. I cracked eventually, and I was um, on a road trip in in Florida um, at the beginning of November, and then I uh, was having some very long drives. So I did then. That was the time really to dig into some of those dark horse episodes. So that's when I really caught up on my solid decoding the gurus time. But I really wanted to know whether or not, yeah, we would converge in the same places after I first spoke to you, and I think we kind of did. I think the one that I really saw was the anti-establishment because kind of doing it for the BBC and approaching people from the BBC. Some of those communities are just so hostile, uh, like the pickup artist community, for example, um, just absolutely think anything that the BBC is going to do is going to be a stitch up. They're going to be horrible. And I kept getting sort of slightly shamefaced emails from people who were kind of wanted to talk, but also knew that this was a kind of there was a huge taboo in their community against doing it. So that was one of the things that came across really, really strongly. What else did I like, you guys have already picked up on? Yeah, the, the conspiracist thinking is absolutely there in lots of those um, and the money aspect of it, like uh, one of the things that um, Tara Isabella Burton, who wrote this book called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World, talked to me about the supplement business. And the fact that if you look at Gwyneth Paltrow's goop supplements and you look at Alex Jones's Instahard and all this kind of crazy stuff, they're all relying on the same complementary medicine that isn't really medicine supplements. Just one is branded for anxious middle-aged women in California and one is branded for like slightly overweight middle-aged men who think they're Rambo in the Midwest, but they, they, but the money, that's where the money is. The money is in supplements and the money is in crypto because that's unregulated in the same way. So yeah, I got a chance to dig in a bit more to some of that stuff. 
I think narcissism came up. Would you agree? Yeah, Matt is, uh, yeah, the, good prompt, Matt. Good prompt there, very subtle. But the, I, the interesting thing for me about the series, and I've heard most of it, although now everybody can because the half of it is out, but the, you have done this strange thing, Helen, and didn't really know it was possible, where you take a topic, and you fit lots of information into a short, condensed format of under 30 minutes. There's relatively limited amounts of waffle or personal information. And then you stick to the topic and you deal with the Bitcoin people and the pickup artists and the kind of health and wellness space in each. And... I, I realize that I'm describing like a traditional yeah. <laughs> episodic program, but I, I'm just genuinely quite impressed because like one of the things with these people that, that, that are gurus is they speak so much and they're all over the place. But if you want to get the full appreciation of what they're like, you must have so much content because you did interviews and stuff with them that you could fill episodes of decoding the gurus for several months with so i i'm curious about that like is it at the end are you happy you know with what comes out or are you kind of very upset that all of your great work is left on the cutting room floor yeah you have to machine gun quite a lot of um darlings there's a whole story about um peter mccormack who's a bitcoin guru going to see president bikaley of El salvador taking a load of back pain medication which made him really high and he ended up nearly vomiting on a rug in front of him and i was very attached to this story i find it hilarious but it just had nothing to do with the subject at hand and so it had to be ruthlessly cut out but a half hour an hour podcast the script for that including interviews is about five thousand words so I just want you to reflect really on the number of words that you've spoken on this podcast in the last year. Like it's several versions of War and Peace over and over again. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things. And genuinely a problem. When we were doing episode five, which is the intellectual dark web, which is out on Boxing Day, um, to the extent that both the sound mixer and the editor actually had problems cutting Jordan Peterson because his sentences don't end. They just don't end. And we're just like, try and find a representative clip that's not, you know, because you can't misrepresent him. You've got to kind of give a fair, and it's just like that bit. We'll just arbitrarily chop it here and here. And just some some bit about, something about Jung. Right, that'll do. It was really, it was a big challenge, that one. So we were interviewed recently on a podcast about cults and people that were previously in cults. And they were talking to us about why so many of the people in the guru space appear to be male. Matt appear to be male. They, they generally are male. And Matt re-presented re his theory of, um, you know, men being risk-taking sensation seekers because he's obsessed with gambling and he knows that this applies. But you previously suggested, the last time we had you on, that there's, a, there's an issue there because that applies more to younger men than older men, but lots of the gurus are older. So uh, we were asked in the interview what the solution to that was, and neither of us could remember. So Matt kindly told them to like uh, listen to what Helen Lewis said <laughs> in that interview, but um, I'm inviting you, Situ, here, and Matt can now consult with you to help okay. him upgrade this theory. There's another gender difference. What is it? Well, I, I mean, this is a very, you may, this is 
hardcore feminist theory. So, Matt, so you're entitled, you know, entitled to question the evidentiary basis of it. But this is the idea of male entitlement is the idea that we like Cordelia Fine's book is very good on this. The fact that you know parents pay more attention to male babies, male kids in school um, talk more, they interrupt more, they get more attention from the teachers. So uh, there is a kind of, and I think I'm convinced relatively by the evidence of it, a kind of consistent drumbeat in boys' lives that you're someone who's worthy of attention or someone who should be listened to, you can put yourself first. Whereas all like, you know, the I spent my childhood being told, you know, it's not ladylike, you know, sit properly, do this, don't don't take up too much space. And there's that brilliant Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie piece that, you know, girls are told to shrink themselves and, and, and like put other people first. And I think there's a kind of, with the gurus, is kind of tapping the wine glass, everybody listen to me thing that is quite... It is quite something that we don't normally encourage women to do. Now, as ever, there are some percentage of women that are, like me, massively fond of the sound of their own voices and overcome this terrible, debilitating uh, female condition. But like, I just think that's you find more men who are... And also the other thing, I think, in, in the gurus that you cover, they have to have a certain inability to read feedback that people are a bit bored, right? There's a kind of like of emotional intelligence that your audience's eyes have slightly glazed over and you're nonetheless plowing onto the next 10 minutes of this anecdote regardless. And I, I, yeah, I wonder if that's a more male trait too. But this is, I mean, this is very, you know, stereotypical, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, no, you'd be very proud of me because I did actually mention that in that interview, Chris. I did mention, I literally said, it's the patriarchy. I literally said you that. You did. You did. I that, did because that's a summary of what Helen just described. Yeah, so. yeah, because like I googled like during that interview, I googled like Indian gurus, the traditional gurus, just, and Google gives you a nice, great big list with all the photographs, and yeah, they're all they're all guys, right? <laughs> and you got to got to expect society's got to have something to do with that, right? So for the same reason that most politicians are on there, yeah. right? Um, so um, it's the old it's the old nature nurture. Well, I do, and I also think if you accept the thesis, which our commissioning editor was really interested that we explore, that to some extent the kind of internet gurus have replaced traditional religion, then you are swapping one male authority figure for another. The other couple of dynamics I think are really important is I think there are a lot of guys out there looking for a kind of father figure. And actually, mm. David Fuller, who you guys know, I asked him this question in regard to Peterson, and he said, well, look, it's, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if that's true, but like, I don't think it's a bizarre or offensive question, essentially, was what he said. Because you know, that, that's Peterson's appeal to lots of people, is like stern but empathetic. Or at least it was before he you know, went into his full you know, madness of King George Pomp these days. But, but he was explicitly a kind of stern dad to the internet. And then the other thing is, I think to some extent, and this is getting very stereotypical, that podcasts in some respect become for men like friends. <laughs> Sorry if this sounds really offensive. I don't mean it to be. But like the parasocialness of it, I think for people who don't have such huge social networks themselves in real life can actually be really appealing. I feel, I feel attacked. This is... <laughs> just, look, Alan, just to be clear, Matt and I are not friends. This is purely a business a relationship, purely intellectual. Matt is uh, an intellectual sock. <laughs> for for uh, my entertainment, there's there's no passion or, for, or genuine friendship there. But but that no no I mean I mean I mean that's good. Thank you for clearing that up. But I mean for the audience, right? In the sense we talked a lot in the last couple of years about the kind of crisis of male loneliness, about the fact that decline of male only, you know, the fact that pubs and bars used to be very male spaces, they're now mixed family spaces. There aren't that many, you know, and actually also the. They have this line about whether or not it's like women talk to each other and men talk alongside each other, right? Like often a lot of men find it more comfortable to like go fishing together, go to the cricket together, go to the football together. And they don't have to be like, now is our big deep chat about our feelings. And I wonder if podcasts kind of give you that. Like you listen to Joe Rogan mm. and it's like, here are the bros all kind of 
hanging out together. And like, I'm yeah. a bro too. Yeah, I think careful, some- Matt, careful. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, look, there's so much stuff fitting into it. And there's a couple of things that's tricky. First of all, like any sort of evidence of like psychological empirical data on this isn't very helpful in figuring out who's going to be a guru because they're almost by definition exceptional people yeah. and the the kind of data you gather on risky status seeking behaviors or narcissism whatever is on normal or relatively normal populations so it can help you understand about the audience perhaps but not so much about those edge tail scenarios I, th- I think, though, that dark triad, the, the narcissism and that egocentric kind of thing is is maybe a, a sex difference that persists. Um, what is, is the dark know, for, triad Machiavellianism, narcissism and psychopathy? No, what, what is it? Oh, I always forget. God. I think that's it, isn't it? Has the quiz yeah. started or is this just like... <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> academic specialism. No, because they always, they always said that they found that in internet trolls as well. Like there is... Uh, it's mm. funny if you think that the psychology of the guru and the internet troll is... It, in one way, one oh. is just a much more successful internet troll, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, if you look at the replies to uh, Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson, you know, there's, there's a lot of women there who are who are on board. Um, are there? Yeah, I was browsing through them today. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe anti-vax is a bit of a special situation, but at least when I sort of browse, it feels it feels pretty, pretty gender Jordan neutral. Jordan Peterson went anti-vax quite hard today. Today, so, yeah. Yeah. He was always a little bit anti-vax. So if you remember, they went to um, Serbia during the pandemic. I think it was one of the former Yugoslav countries because they didn't want to be in the like all the US lockdowns, the Canadian lockdowns were so incredibly strict. And you were like, like, sir, you've recently had double pneumonia. Like, this is really an illness you should not catch. Like, I'll probably be fine. You actually might die if you if you catch this. But it was I, uh, so there were there were early signs that he was going that way. There were, and I think like. This might be a reverse influence case from Michaela is is more inclined towards that or or it was initially, but there was an interesting case actually where we decoded the discussion between Jordan Peterson and Brett, which was one of his first post illness extended interviews. And Brett, because he's Brett, at several points brought up the vaccines and COVID. And Jordan repeatedly kind of had to take that well I don't know about that and I'm not really in a place to speak because I you know I've just been knocked out and I haven't had the time to look into things he he doesn't have that concern anymore but me and I remember Matt you and I at the time saying isn't it nice to see someone being like thrown the ball and asked the like rum of it and saying look I'm not I'm not in a position to comment on vaccines and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it, well, that's actually, so different from now. When I, when I saw Jordan's, you know, jumping on the anti-vax thing and there was a sense of rightness to it, like you could tell that he was comfortable and he, the jigsaw puzzles fitted into place with this satisfying click. And one of the standard psychological perspectives on why people have particular opinions is they, they have opinions that fit in with a broader worldview. And, and his opinion about vaccines didn't fit in yeah. with his general anti-establishment um, yeah. worldview and you could you could feel that it 
it, it just it, it you felt him sort of clicking into place and now, the same with climate change really right like he just has rejected the scientific consensus on climate change for basically the same reasons because it would kind of just be, make him an outlier the one thing i did think making that into intellectual dark web episode actually is my respect for sam harris has increased because he does seem to be able to stand up to his friends and say i know you all think this but i actually don't and and, and like i say i agree with you entirely jordan peterson's radicalization to me it looks not like an intellectual journey but like peer pressure and yeah. sam harris has to some extent managed to resist that often at great yeah. personal cost of all the rest of them being mean boys to him basically and like laughing at him which is one of the you know, hardest things to resist that if you get like a load of high status people all just openly mocking you very few people will be able to resist that it would be good if somebody had encouraged sam harris to uh take that kind of stance earlier and <laughs> and, and made that point to him uh, just it would have been it would have been good, but you know we, we can't we can't live in that world. So needless to say, Chris, you had the last laugh. <laughs> well, oh, oh, that interview, yes, oh, yes, that did come up in that interview, but it, it is very nice to see. Well, I think it's it's ironic in a way, like Sam Harris's willingness to to disappoint people and just that bullheaded, single-minded way that he's got the very thing that made him so irritating for you to interview. Who said he was irritating that? You said that. I didn't say that. Anyway, I think that's helped him resist that peer pressure and stuff. Right. So, and I yeah, feel the same about um, Barry Weiss as well, right? Of the, formerly of the New York Times, who left the New York Times, founded what was formerly Common Sense, now the Free Press. And she did the Twitter file. So she took the Elon bargain, the Faustian Elon bargain, but then immediately went and did some actual reporting looked into some other stuff and then said, I'm really concerned that we've exchanged one, you know, overlord's whims for another overlord's whims, at which point Elon had a little cry because it turned out he didn't want independent journalism at all. He wanted somebody to be his instrument and I think unfollowed her, which is, I mean, for a 50-something man, just an aspirational level of pettiness, um, I, which yeah. I have to respect. But yeah, I, I, I respected that she did that, that she went, I'm a journalist, like, give me some files. Great. It's really interesting. And maybe I'll agree to your conditions because this story is so good, but that doesn't mean you own me. And I think any journalist worth their salt would have immediately gone, I'm going to do something now that's rude about Elon Musk just to show that I can. I'm, I don't, I'm not bought and sold like that. It, it was nice. It was nice to see that. And some people have indicated that Tyvee talked a bit about it on this podcast. I haven't listened to confirm that, but. But in that case, with the Twitter files, and you know, we we should talk about Musk as a potential guru. But I, on Barry Weiss, I, this this is this is a pet peeve. But right. uh, I think I think it does relate to uh, like especially the IDW side of the guru sphere because it's something that Matt and I have talked also in some of the American self help people that we covered. There's a breathless way that they present information and you see it in extreme form in Brett Weinstein where everything is the collapse of civilization and you know the woke are going to take over and it or James Lindsay for that matter Barry is not that but when consuming her content I definitely get the same sense and I did with the Twitter files that like wait for this ground shaking earth moving information which will blow your mind about everything that happened and then fundamentally with the twitter files and whatnot it is an interesting story it's nice to see moderation discussions and like peek behind the the slack window but is exactly what i would have anticipated was happening at twitter 
and in line with what was publicly known. So it just, that's the, the bit that, yeah. The trouble with that is that in counterpoint to that, I would say, think about the Snowden or the Julian Assange revelations and think about, oh, the CIA does some spying. Oof, pretty heady stuff. Like, you, you have to not be too kind of like yawny about that stuff. And also the fact that the Guardian and the New York Times puffed that stuff like it was kind of earth shaking, right? And oh, our relations with our allies will never be the same again. And guess what? It turns out that everyone went, oh, yeah, okay. So the CIA are bugging our phones. Oh, right. Well, yeah, fair enough. We probably thought that was true. So I kind of, from a journalist point of view, I'm going to defend sensationalism because you always want to, people to read your stories. But I will concede that it created a massive problem, right? Which is that. Mary Weiss and Matt Tybee came out and said, this is the most earth-shattering thing. Life will never be the same again. And everyone else was quite bored by it because it was quite technical. And now the right-wing sphere is obviously kind of going, fact. yeah, going, oh, well, this is it. This is more the liberal media trying to cover stuff up. Why isn't, this on the, why isn't it the most important story in the world on the front page of the New York Times? Which is, again, also how I feel about Hunter Biden's laptop, right? It's really interesting if you go and talk to US normie Republicans and say, what was on Hunter Biden's laptop? And actually, very often, they can't tell you. They just know it was bad. It was something about corruption, something about porn, and that's it. But but the, it's become totemic, and the fact that people won't cover it has become totemic as well. This is probably like slightly tangential to guru stuff, but you know it's our show; we can do that. I do have this question about like one thing that Matt and I've noticed when it comes to like the discourse around the lab leak, um, and it applies to the Twitter files and it applies to the Hunter Biden laptop as well. That a large part of the debate just becomes the shifting narrative. Like you said, with the Hunter Biden stuff, what's actually on the laptop? It's like, it isn't really this earth-shaking revelations. The best thing that people have been able to focus on is some reference to the big man, right? In an email, a potential meeting set up, some deal that might have potentially involved Biden in an email, right? This is this is it. It is not the greatest like Watergate level conspiracy. And the same thing with the lab leak that when people talk about it, they they have this memory of it where if you mention it, you were completely kicked off uh, social media and you weren't allowed to discuss it in polite company or people would spit out their tea and you know scream that you're a racist. But none of it's not true. First of all, it's not true because I had to deal with the lab leak people every day on Twitter, nobody was banning them. It seems that like a lot of what the guru is doing, a lot of what with, uh, the online discourse and the Twitter files is no exception, is around the perception as opposed to the content. Like what do the Twitter files mean? Does this mean that everyone was vindicated when they were talking about shadow banning and stuff? And it does feel a lot like the details get lost in the vibe for either people wanting to endorse it or say that it's nothing and that that's predetermined. And I'm, I definitely have a bias towards it being l lesser. And, you know, you mentioned Snowden and the, uh, I can't remember the other one, the, the Julian Assange. Files. Oh, oh Julian the, Assange. Uh, the Paradise Papers. Yes. Yeah. 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 So like, I, I agree that like with the Paradise Papers and stuff like that, I kind of was like, yeah, rich, rich people have tax schemes. Oh, shocking. But, but I did think it is good to have them documented. And with Snowden, even though we know like the CIA and stuff is spying, like the extent of the spying was, I think, sort of surprising that they were doing such a huge net. And, and then the problem was they had too much data to even look at. So 
I I realize I'm waffling around, but the point I'm trying to make, like, is when you're you're a journalist and you have to address these kind of topics, do you find that is what you end up having to deal with? A lot of it, like, being vibe-based on people's perceptions as opposed to, like, the actual details of stories and, and like, to relate it to Barry, is it a problem that she seems to be playing into those kind of vibe-based things? That's my my kind of issue. Yeah, I think that's the thing. When you're a, a, a sole trader rather than part of an institution, then, you know, and I think David Fuller says this pretty explicitly, right? All the incentives are, you know, he said, I could have grown my channel by just platforming anti-woke people. You have to make a conscious, economically wounding decision to yourself over and over and over again to do good, responsible journalism. And that's some... Um, I think that's really tough. I mean, I had a conversation with the BBC because I said, like, I just want you to be fully aware in advance that the people that I'm going to be covering are very likely to complain about this series because to them, all the incentives align with doing it, right? Like, I've been terribly traduced by the mainstream media is for their, for their audiences an incredibly appealing narrative. I would doubt that, you know, we're, we're going to make this as legally and ethically sound as we can, that they will have grounds for an official law or even a legal complaint. But nonetheless, there are lots of people for whom making a huge fuss on social media is nothing but upside for them. And you have to be aware of that when you're doing journalism in this environment. And I also get kind of slightly annoyed. You know, the Elon fanboys are a really good example about this. The sheer level of credulousness that if... So the example about the the, his, the stalker, the story about the stalker, right, and how the jet was putting his kid in danger is a really good example. When the Washington Post goes and does this, involving Bellingcat, right, and Bellingcat taking time off the Ukraine war to look into this, geolocates where his car was, and it's, you know, it's a day after his plane last flew and se several miles away. So he's just made that up as far as we can see that the jet had anything to do with that incident but people who will spend all their time saying the mainstream media are lying to you seem to be completely unaware of the idea that elon musk too it's possible may lie to you yeah yeah that like inconsistency of charity is i mean it's a feature of humans in general but like with the musk it's impressive <laughs> in some cases and that concept of like you know, four-dimensional and nine-dimensional, how many dimensions you want chess seems to be very, very useful because when somebody does something that looks stupid or it seems counterproductive, it, there's like always this escape hatch that maybe they're doing something really clever and it's so clever that you have to just, it looks stupid because we are just not on their level. So like uh, Musk did a poll very recently when we were recording about like whether he not he should be the CEO and and various people were having online corneries about that, that because it, it ended up that he he was voted quite unanimously no that he shouldn't be in the poll but they I then saw people saying oh this was actually a poll to like catch the bots who would vote against them and stuff like that and uh, yeah it, it seems you know cope the cope is strong but yeah. But the one thing I felt about um, Musk is that I, it, it's really interesting to me that I think he is very Trumpy. And I know we went through a phase of comparing everything to Trump, but like in both cases, the thing is the same, right? The offer is that everyone is lying to you or everyone, like no one knows what they're doing. And at least I'm honest about it. So all politicians lie or like, you know, I'm just, if you were rich, wouldn't you be a chaos dragon like this? This is what freedom really is. And to me, I, and, and I'm Matt, I'd be really interested in your take on this because I felt like that a lot with the gurus we covered in the series that what the shape they finally took was essentially arbitrary. And I sometimes feel this about like 
terrorism and jihadis too, right? Like you have a combination of a personality type and the prevailing ideology of society and that dictates rather than anything else. I, is that, maybe that's just massively simplistic, but like I look at, um, so James Lindsay obviously started off as a new atheist writer, you know, in the, in the, and is now kind of in bed with the kind of Christian conservatives or um, Tom Torero, who's the pickup artist I deal with in episode six, started off, first of all, he wanted to be an orthodox monk um, oh, he also had a do- kind of Dawkins phase, and then he got very into religion, and then he wanted to be an orthodox monk, and then he became a pickup artist, and he wanted to sleep with as many women as possible. And like these, on the surface of it, like, do you want to be celibate or not? Like, make up your mind. And but actually, what he was always doing was always looking for that position where he, he would get to talk, like he would get to be a priest essentially, and, and it'd be either a priest of a religion or it'd be a priest of pickup artistry. And I just found that very, I found that very compelling. Yeah, yeah, we've we spoken about this before, and it's the idea of looking at things um, through a psychological lens rather than an ideological or a political one, where the specific platform, the specific story that they're telling, isn't as important as the fact that they are the person up there who's telling the story and enthralling everyone. And I, I don't think it's wrong to make those parallels between between Musk and Trump and the rest of our gurus. I've read a book like. When I was like a teenager, it was something called something like Mozart and the Enlightenment, and it was it had this had this funny thing, and it basically said you could basically understand everything as like this conflict between Romanticism and Classicism. The Romantic figure, these people that break all of the boundaries and they have this charisma about them, there's an appeal to that, and it's contrasted against a kind of a bureaucracy and these checks and balances and systems and rules and all of that stuff. It feels to me that the appeal of someone like Musk or, or Trump or all, all of those other figures, or even you know the good old-fashioned fascists like, like, like Hitler or Mussolini, is that they are this personal figure that, that sweeps away all of the corruption and you can trust them because you feel like you know them, you have a parasocial relationship with them. And that to me feels like the difference. People are more accepting of Musk making these arbitrary kind of decisions than they are of these shadowy executives or committees or things happening behind closed doors. It, it kind of plays into the conspiratorial thing as well. But but for a like a classical liberal type person, it's like you like committees, you like rules and regulations and things. Like that. <laughs> what kind of absolute pervert likes committees? Surely no such person. <laughs> there's a there's a guru that is like springing to my mind. That's a really good example of this, and I I loved as well, Helen, the episode that you did covering the pickup artist, especially the trad monk to pickup artist pipeline and un- undiscovered pipeline previously. But it, Matt, you will enjoy it if you hear it as well, uh, especially because you had an interview with the woman that he was married to. Uh, so there was like this personal window into it. But um, the person I'm thinking about is is similarly has a weird collection of views in some respect, Stefan Molyneux. And I came across him actually, I think before his Trump turn, when he'd been profiled in some Channel 4 documentaries about online cults, and he had some appearances on Rogan, the second of which went very bad when Rogan played some videos of him acting in a very misogynistic and and culty way. But Stephen Molyneux, for people who don't know, is like a Canadian YouTuber who previously claimed to have the biggest philosophy channel in the world. He's not a philosopher, but, he, but that is how he self-styled himself. And his, uh, his network was called Free Domain Radio. 
because it was like a kind of libertarian. So he started out as like an anti-spanking um, I was not capitalist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, he's yeah not adult anti-spanking. Although I think he was against that too. But he he viewed it that like I'm, essentially. I'm like spanking your kids. Oh right, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I can't comment on this stance with consenting adults, but he was very concerned with spanking children, and you know okay. as we as we all are, but like that. He felt that, that that corporal punishment led people into this, like, you know, destroyed their life. And he was he was early on a kind of manosphere figure. And and so it was basically Mullers completely destroying the lives of people. And even if it was men who did the punishment, he did this famous spiel saying it's because women are rewarding the assholes. They are the ones that are fucking the species, right? Like, so, sorry, Helen, but, you know, ultimately... It is always women's fault, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to have that cleared up. But he went from anarcho-capitalist to, uh, from, like, anti-spanking online psychology cult to anarcho-capitalist libertarian to strong MAGA Trump apologist. And then uh, his current thing is, I believe, ethno-nationalist, banned from all platforms. So that's quite the journey. And it's one that takes place in the space of just seven or eight years. It's like a lifetime of ideology. And you do see in some figures who are very popular, like uh, Christopher Hitchens, or or even like this figure doesn't have exactly a political stance, but like Mark Kermode, for example, the popular film critic, were in... Is he white supremacist now? No. No, he's, he's, not, he's, he's not come out as an anti-spanker yet. <laughs> right, he's, okay. he's, he was uh, like a, some variety of insane Marxist in his university years. A Trotskyist, I think that's what he was. Yeah, an old Trot, as he said. But Christopher Hitchens went for a whole gamut of ideologies. So is that is that something that we think is... You know, the, like for gurus, the ideology is somewhat disposable, or is that a subset of gurus? Like, I know you've been covering Ron DeSantis, and he seems like somebody that's rather ideologically malleable or opportunistic, um, might be the way to phrase it. But yeah. I mean, he's always been um, incredibly conservative, but then he, for as long as he's only 44 now, so for as long as he's been in the Republican Party, you know, the Tea Party had been in the ascendant, and it was very obvious where the kind of energy of that party went. He was, um, when he was in Congress, he was part of the Freedom, he was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, whose unofficial nickname for themselves, because they wanted to get stuff done, but they were also incredibly conservative, was the Reasonable Nutjob Caucus. Which I think it's just like good because other people they're un- unreasonable nut jobs. We're the reasonable nut jobs. Um, but you know, they so he called had- themselves that. Yeah, they, that was an, referred. That was their unofficial nickname for themselves, uh, which is good at level of self awareness. But he's not a guru figure, and like it's interesting. It's actually going to present a challenge to political reporters. I think coming into next year, that he's very uncharismatic. He's actually kind of boring. To, I went to watch one of his rallies, and I was a bit. I was like, oh no, this is bad because people will just zone out of this. And he's actually saying things that are quite, you know, extraordinary and, and particularly cruel. And, and, and But it's not got the fireworks of Trump, right? Trump came attended with all this hoopla of like, hey, I'm going to be evil. Watch me be evil, everyone. I'm so evil. And actually somebody who's just bu- bureaucratically evil is, is, is much harder to get people to pay attention to. Um, but what he's done, because he's an incredibly smart guy, is he has now recruited 
I would say unreasonable nut job wingmen, basically, right? He now has outsourced all of that. So he's now got his new, his own version of the CDC with lots of these dissident scientists on and your, your friend of mine, Brett Weinstein. And so he's got people to do that kind of level of, of heavy lifting for him to say the kind of, ooh, you know, maybe all of this is, you know, maybe Anthony Fauci should be put in prison, right? That sort of stuff. And it's been very useful for him because what it's allowed him to do is outflank Trump from the right. And he's also made a very smart calculation that the donors and the party elites are ready to move on from Trump. And actually, for all that there are lots of people in the base who love the crazy, there are lots of people in the base too who want all the delicious lib-owning but don't want the fear that it will cross the line and the dog whistle will become a whistle and it will embarrass them. It will be vulgar. You know, there are lots of people in that base who are, you know, they've been married for 50 years. They have a very strong faith. They would love to have a Trump, but without the pussy grabbing, essentially. And Ron DeSantis is married to a very beautiful former TV anchor. He's got three adorable looking children. His wife went through breast cancer last year and he supported her through that. So he's got like, he gives you, he's got a wholesome story, but he will put people on the Supreme Court. He'll make Genghis Khan look like a hand-wringing liberal and pass very draconian laws, which is what they want. And above everything else, if there's one thing that he has done, is tax cuts for businesses, which he's done very effectively in Florida. So he's offering the Republican Party an incredible bargain, and it depends to be seen what the percentage of people is who love the crazy. This is what I've been trying to work out for the last couple of months. Who wants the tax cuts and who wants the drama? And which of those sides is going to win? I'm curious how that picture that you're painting, and you've done, you have various articles about Ron DeSantis that we'll we'll put in the show notes because I think they're very interesting about, you know, his kind of personality and that. But if you have Ron DeSantis uh, in the way that you described as like, you know, quite strategic thinker, but not a bombastic delivery guy, even if he tries to put that on in occasion. And we're seeing somebody like Elon Musk, who from me and Matt consuming his content for the decoding episode is similar. Like in the way that he delivers things, it's quite boring and like relatively seeing whenever he, he's talking. It's, you know, it's not even TED talk level, the pitch usually. It's more Moon low day. energy than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the the interesting thing for me is that implies that like if you look at Musk's Twitter behavior, you would think he's this mental, bombastic guru type, but he's not personality-wise, but he can play that online. And it sounds like Ron DeSantis can outsource the craziness to James Lindsay and Brett Weinstein and these kind of people. So does that mean that we are approaching a point where you can just outsource your, like, you, you can just get the crazy people and or play the character online, but you yourself can be quite calculating and rather boring in your delivery and still get the benefit? Is that what's going to happen? That's that's what the Republican primary of next year will demonstrate. And the other thing it will demonstrate is just the importance of that right-wing media ecosphere, which I guess we all sort of talk about in this really casual way, but it is just incredibly asymmetric. you know. And I think one of the things that Musk is really wrestling with now is the idea that that people might say things that he doesn't agree with, right? It's sort of fascinating, all this rhetoric about kind of safe spaces on the right. And actually, the one thing that lots of people on the right really cannot handle is the idea of a not safe space. Um, I'm, I'm kind of consistently fascinated. And Ron DeSantis, you know, he's been on, it's not Tucker Carlson, although he did a long sit down with Tucker Carlson, which he went into his backstory. And it was one of those absolutely classic backstories where this is a guy who went to Yale Law 
and one of the other Ivy Leagues, I think Harvard undergrad. Um, and he said, you know, the day I first arrived, um, I was in jean shorts because I'm from Florida and they all looked down on me. And, you know, it was that classic right-wing populist trope of, I went among the elites and I discovered they were all snooty and disdainful. Uh, and he's played that very carefully. Like he's very much downplayed his elite credentials um, in a much more successful way than the previous generations, of pre-Trump generations of Republicans were able to. But that is also where you have to be now to win a Republican primary. You have to be not just, you know, you have to be overtly anti-intellectual, basically. So what do you think? I mean, that's that's part of a broader thing with the with the right and the left kind of switching places in a way. The left traditionally has been the party, the workers' party, the party of the working class and against the elites and whatever. More and more, of course, it's the party that academics and like me or journalists like you <laughs> tend to vote for. And the right has pivoted towards going for that populism. So is is that all just part of this broader shift? Like, have you you must have thought about that a fair bit. What does what does all that mean? I've got a very normie analysis on this, which is exactly what you're right. That we moved in from the 20th century model of class based and economic based voting to now a method of values based voting, and it's r- relatively true across America. I'm not sure whether or not it's so true across Australia. You can tell me. It's true. But, um, yeah, it's true. Here. Yeah, that you get the cities are very in American terms blue, right? Um, and then it's yeah. the it's the it's the surrounding counties, and that doesn't that's not always the case. But you know, graduates vote far more for left wing parties now. For example, like it's one of the biggest predictors. One, of the, I think, the single biggest predictor of voting remain in the EU referendum was having um uh, was was having a degree. So it's, yeah. it's switched. And I think a lot of that is about the decline of manufacturing jobs. A lot of that is about where the kind of growth in the economy has come over the last 20 years. And of course, the other big split as well is just age, which is kind of fascinating. Basically, the conservative base in this country is people in their 50s and above. It's just that there's a lot of them and they all vote. And they're very evenly distributed throughout the country, you know, whereas younger people are heavily concentrated in, in the cities. So there has been this enormous political realignment. And it does it has had enormous effects on on politics. But the thing that I think I do cling to, you know, the what's the matter with Kansas thesis, which is that the right in the US effectively welded on guns initially and abortion onto an economic platform um, in order to keep getting people voting against their own economic interests. Um, yeah. And that's I, I, it, like it feels very simplistic and I don't mean it in a rude way, but it is it has been incredible. Like someone like Ron DeSantis is essentially if you look at actually what he's interested in in policy terms, it's tax cuts for businesses and consistently all the way through what you know the Republican hierarchy put up with Trump because he gave t- he put tax cuts in place absolutely nothing else matters so you have to kind of to some extent look at all that stuff as kafebi the trouble is that it's kafebi that affects people's actual lives and this is why we come back to this discussion Chris you know about the same thing about you know do they really mean it um when people do this you know do these people really believe what they're saying and i just kind of constantly think i don't care and i don't mind because it's it doesn't matter ultimately but the other thing that's interesting Matt, is what you were saying about the kind of personality thing is it does suggest what the remedy is for these gurus, right? Which has to be structural rather than personal because those people are always going to exist. And what you have to do is, can, is create a society in which they don't flourish. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing that we can do. What are the things that we would do that would mean that, you know, a proto Weinstein doesn't, doesn't, no one listens to him. He's just, you know, sitting at home ranting quietly to himself about ivermectin. So on that very topic, Helen, and, You've fallen neatly into the, the jaws of, of our, our trap because you, you personally are somewhat responsible for encouraging a present day guru, somebody who was once 
still is to some extent, like associated with the left. It certainly was at that time, but now has a right-wing populist streak in him, right? I'm speaking, of course, of one Russell Brand, who during your time at New Statesman edited <laughs> the, the uh, a special issue, right? Around uh, about the time when he was opining on politics. He is often opining in politics now, but at that time, it was on the back of the interview with Jeremy Paxman, the a BBC political reporter wasn't that off the back of that? No, where you said, I mean, don't, don't say. Oh no, don't, don't say. No, no, don't say this to anyone who worked at the New Statesman at the time because we set him up with that interview to promote the issue, and then it was every. It was the only thing that anyone remembers. But it's fine because actually that's now all quite embarrassing, and the fact that people don't think I had anything to do with it is, is, is probably you better. Did that. That's even. That's even. You're even more responsible than I give you credit. So you are yeah. part of the reason that he was talking to Jeremy Paxman and told everyone, like, why vote? What difference does it make? They're all a bunch of idiots anyway. So do we at least have some thanks to give to you for encouraging Russell Brand to become more political and to tell more people about his opinion? Or can you not claim responsibility for No, that I, well, rise? ironically, of all the things that I have actually been cancelled for, I've never been cancelled for the one thing I think I sort of deserve it for, because... It was 2013 and he was writing a football column for The Guardian and he was still doing kind of stand-up and stuff like that. Like he was in that space, but not known. He hadn't written the book Revolution yet or I don't, maybe he'd written my bookie work. Sorry, it makes me upset. Makes me upset to say that out loud. (laughs) Isn't it a (laughs) two-part? I think there's a a sequel, my wookie book. Oh God. Yeah. Can can I just, I think I might have said this before, but I have to interject that. One of my enduring memories of my student time in London was I didn't go to your fancy elite media parties very often, but one of my friends became sort of involved in media and had a house party, and there were various people there. And in the middle of the night, at what was a very unenjoyable party, somebody had like a microphone set up, like a kind of karaoke thing, and they were reading from my bookie work. They were just like like doing a, a reading in the way that you would read War and Peace or I don't know what people read in those kind of things. So I, I had my, my bookie week seared into my... I didn't enjoy that at the time and I would not enjoy it now. That so is just a telling powerful, you, like, don't take drugs kids message or you may end up reading out my bookie work to people at a party. Um, and we went... I, I wouldn't normally tell this story, but it has now been um, 10 years and it, he's completely crackers now, so I'm, I'm going to. We went to meet him at the Savoy for the setup meeting and he told me this story about how there was a universal animal consciousness and the way you could tell this was that cows had learnt in Germany to walk over cattle brids with their little hooves, like, just on the bits. And I was like, oh, great, cows. Oh, clever than you think, eh, those cows. What, are, what will they think of next? And he went, and the thing is that all around the world, cows have now learned to walk over cattle grids. <laughs> and there was a bit of my brain that was going, this is, I mean, this is bad news. This is like off our only defense against the cow rampage has finally been taken away from us. Shit, we're in trouble now. They're on to us. And, and of course I came away and I was like, is that true? And of course it's not true. But it was, it was, it was so compelling the way he was saying, it was like he was there like this huge gothic spider, very thin, covered in chains. And incredibly kind of compelling, um, <laughs> just incredibly, just an incredibly charismatic man. 
um, and who would just hold people's hands. He was very, you know, touchy. Um, but yeah, we did this uh, this edition, and and the, the the content was kooky. I'm I've blanked most of it out of my mind, but there was definitely David Lynch on transcendental meditation. There was a piece by Alec Baldwin on whether or not JFK had in fact been shot by uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't we don't look back on that one with um with joy. But there was also a piece about this piece about not voting and about the need for revolution. And Shepard Fairey of the Obama Hope poster did the front cover, which was a revolution of consciousness. And the whole theme of the thing was revolution. And then we set him up to do that interview with Jeremy Paxman in which he said, Don't don't vote and it was incredibly popular. I then commissioned Robert Webb to write a piece the next week, which was like, No, actually do vote. And I think it the in fact the last line of the thing is so Russell, go away and read some fucking Orwell, um, which, <laughs> and it turned into like kind of a good like kind of slang match between the two of them. So I did slightly atone for it, but the thing is, I it was this is the bit I really regret is that it was all kind of slightly fun and games happening in this land of like, well, maybe we could just ask questions, you know? Isn't it great to have open mm-hmm. minds? And I just think I wrote a piece about kind of the sort of groiper memes before the 2016 election you know the kind of dank memes and people thinking it was fun to flirt with nazi imagery and stuff like that and there was just in those first years of the 2010s an immense level of complacency that this was the final finished form like what the end of history had happened i remember reading a a column in the ft by janan ganesh who is their kind of big flaneur correspondent saying that the problem with politics is it's just so boring there's no you know it's like apathy no one cares anymore like it's all just and in, in, in a way that just seems to me like the kind of that was the death knell of that era of politics, the kind of everything's great. Like what could possibly go wrong here? And then it, from 2015, 16 onwards, it really, it really did. The boring classicist kind of, you know, guys in gray suits, the hollow men, you know, running the show. When there's too much of them, it creates space for people like Russell Brand and everyone feels like they want a breath of fresh air and things like the bookie book or transcendental consciousness with cows starts sounding interesting because you're just so bored with the people in suits i don't know like australia is a bit like that at the moment like our two like in many ways our politics is so much healthier than places like the united states partly because we have compulsory voting and we don't have a mainstream party that's gone mental but as a result they are extremely centrist and it's very hard to discriminate them and in many ways that's a good thing i think probably mostly it's a good thing but um you can see that when they get too close together that they create space at the edges for for just all kinds of weirdness. Yeah. There is a like a coda for the Russell Brand thing, which you know his ultimate coda is where he is now, which you know is not a good place and not good impact on the world. He was, I believe, he was just talking with somebody about the Twitter files, but um, in any Matt Tybee, yeah, he's interviewed Matt Tybee, and he's also yeah. occupies a really interesting space, right? Because he's got that whole bit to himself, which is basically left wing anti-vax, you know, sort of Chomsky-Pilger kind of questioning of um, Western imperialism. Because so much of that stuff in the US is dominated by the right, there's actually, the fact that he's not actually into groomer discourse, he's not, he's pretty anti-capitalist, you know, he, he is occupying a, a great niche, like respect to, respect to the lad, he's found a, he's found a market opening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. left-wing, crunchy populism, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a market segment. <laughs> Who would have thought? But I do remember before, and he, I, I, he definitely wouldn't do this now, but after he went on that kind of grand tour about the absolute meaninglessness of voting and how all political parties are fundamentally the same, he then had a sit-down interview with the Charisma 
vacuum that is Ed Miliband and Ed Miliband, uh, he, he like put, you know, the kind of very basic questions, the, like the kind of stuff that, you know, politicians get asked uh, when they go to a primary school. Well, what have you done for us lately? Or this kind of thing. And uh, Ed Miliband provided fairly good stock answers. He's a smart guy, not particularly charismatic, but, you know, very thoughtful person. And his answers were good. And he kind of pointed out, yeah, look, you know, it does matter because here's what conservatives have done and here's what labor governments have done. So actually lots of the things that you care about are relevant. And and then Brussels' response was kind of like, oh, I see. I see. Well, I guess it is important then that we vote and maybe you should all go out and vote for uh, labor. And but he, he did this interview, like, I think three days before the election or like at some point where it was going to have very little impact. And there was... There was talk about whether his anti-vote thing would have uh, swung the vote, right? But it turned out not to have much of an impact at all. You're um, talking about the so. famous Owen Jones headline, which is like, Russell Brand back said Miliband and the Tories should be worried. And it turns out the Tories were not, sadly, worried at all by that. And in <laughs> fact, they, quite sadly, they won an unexpected overall majority, which then meant that they couldn't horse trade away the idea of a Brexit referendum with a pact with the uh, Lib Dems. So, yeah, in a way, if Russell Brand had done that three weeks earlier, Brexit might not have happened. It's one of the many alternate theories of life. There is a, a thing that you mentioned, Helen, about, you know, people, especially in the early 2010s or before Trump, the alt-right and stuff, it wasn't that people were just treating it all as, oh, this is just funny. People are pretending to be Nazis online. But it, it was more like, the New York Times and stuff got criticized for kind of trying to profile <laughs> Nazis, right? They're just like us, but they, they just don't like Jews or, or people from different ethnic backgrounds living in their country. But there was this little genre of, and, and left-wing journalists did it too, Laurie Penny did a notable one um, on Milo, were palling around with quite reprehensible figures and saying, well, of course, their ideology is terrible, but they're a lot of fun <laughs> was a like the kind of common takeaway. And now that looks somewhat irresponsible. But I'm I'm curious. I don't I don't think this, but I'm going to devil's advocate it anyway. So your guru series, you cover a lot of people, the crypto people and whatnot. So is there any concern on your part that you might cover people who take a dark turn, like your coverage of them is relatively moderate. And then in the coming year, they they end up like going down some dark paths. No, I think that's a completely reasonable concern. And Laurie, you know, who used to, I used to edit her, um, or them, sorry, at the uh, New Statesman, you know, I took an enormous amount of, of heat for that that piece. I think it was called The Boys on the Bus. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, the thing is that Milo is just really great fun. And things I'm sure Milo was really great fun. It's just that the kind of missing piece of analysis, I guess, was, and that's how he takes you in to then sell you on whatever mad ideology he's currently pressing. And so the good thing about doing the series for the BBC is that they were very clear, like, and this was, you know, this is hard stuff to do. So episode two, I say, of, of Will, who is our main subject of the episode, who's a guy who drinks his own urine um, and is anti-vax. I really like him. Who doesn't? Who <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> doesn't? But leading to my favorite bit when he was like, I was like, but what about drinking other people's urine? He was like, well, obviously not. No, I wouldn't recommend doing that. And it's like, good. Okay, no. good. We've, we found the line. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, and I wanted to make clear that I, both that I really liked him. He's a really nice guy. 
And also that I understand the story. Like he had strabismus, so he has an eye problem, which he so he spent a lot of childhood in, in interacting in various unpleasant ways with the medical system. Then he got gay bash when he was walking out with his first boyfriend. And instead of getting therapy, he was just, the, you know, the American, American medical system often in pills, or the Canadian medical system often in pills. And so like what I wanted to do was kind of say, it's not right to be anti-vax. Like here are the facts. Here's how many people a year measles killed before the measles vaccine in 1968 or whenever. But I understand the psychological journey that got him to this place. And that to me is the bit that's that's hard. And because it's the BBC, you have to you have to be okay with saying to people, like, I'm not gonna uncritically launder everything that you say. Um, and like I'm sure when the crypto episode comes out that that will be an issue too, right? Because I'm just pretty crypto skeptic. And in my interviews with people, I was very crypto skeptic. And they're allowed to push back, you know, it's uh, the BBC line is you have to have due impartiality. So we have to represent the full range of viewpoints. But the thing that we have to do because of its being a state-funded broadcaster is make very clear when people are outside the mainstream. And 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 that's a quite a, a tough thing to sell interviewees on and get people to kind of agree to sign up to that isn't just going to be... I mean, we've had this conversation before. You know, the number of people who actually genuinely want to come on and do a critical interview with somebody is actually quite low. And they don't have to. They, they can just hang out completely in their lovely, warm bubble of joy. So credit, you know, credit to them for coming on and, and talking to me really. But yeah, you are free to have a go at me for, um, if, if people, it turns out all across Britain tomorrow, like over Christmas are chugging their own piss, then that's me. I did that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm just keeping a tally. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, this ammunition can be used when we need to take you down and, and given where Russell Brand has ended up, this seems likely, but you, you kind of already answered this, but, given that you covered a whole bunch of people and it is clear from the interviews that there are individuals that you got on well with interpersonally, right? And like you say, that's not everything because some monsters are probably interpersonally very entertaining people, like Matt, for example. But the, um, <laughs> are there, when you're like looking at the gurus that you've seen the, across the series, are there ones that you would single out that you like, like, you know, that you don't think what they're doing is particularly harmful. Uh, and you can compare that if you want with like people that fundamentally terrified you and you're worried for the future by their rise. Um, but yeah, that, cause like we, we do, we do cover gurus, including some of the people that we like think are harmful to the discourse. Like, Brett Weinstein and Eric Weinstein, for example, are people that we think do a lot of bad stuff and promote bad thinking. But they're also entertaining in a way that like lots of lesser gurus are not. Um, so, you know, there, there's aspects like that. But yeah. But Joe Rogan is the classic exemplar of that, right? Like, uh, and, and I remember having a weird defense of Joe Rogan during the whole anti-vax thing, which is the fact that if you watch American TV... They are advertising all kinds of insane experimental medicine, that, and then they have to list the side effects at the end, and it's all like you know it'll affect Shatner's bassoon and give you you know crunkles or whatever. Like, and and it's just the lack of lack of regulation and the fact that you are allowed to do direct to consumer advertising. It comes up in one of my special interests, which is child gender medicine. I think to most people in Europe, the idea that a surgeon can directly advertise mastectomies to teenagers is just mind blowing. Like this is just not in my in my world and so but the american system of kind of individualist consumerism is just in a very different place and so while i i didn't think 
Joe Rogan was right to do that. I can also see how it looked like hypocrisy given the overall p- picture of medical regulation in America. And he does an incredibly good job, I think, of being an average guy who's just kind of interesting and interested in people. And I do... Like watching him discuss the liver king, I just found it really, really enjoyable and really likable. Just laughing at this comically hench guy who's clearly had ab implants being like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Like he did have a kind of quite appealing emperor's new clothes, like boy in that story, quality to him. But yeah, I love the productivity hackers. They were all absolute poppets, I thought. Um, but it's all, but that world is quite dark. Again, it kind of comes back to the structures, right? What is the, what is the lessons and the message that people have got that they think that they need to do 15 side hustles and they need to, you know, be boxing out their day in half, uh, hour points. It's all, it's of a piece of that kind of Amazon warehouse approach to work where you must be monitored and controlled all the time and your output must be kind of consistent in this very machine like way. So even the ones that I really liked, I had reservations about, but you know, I felt sorry for some people as well. And to return to our one of our frequent subjects, James Lindsay, he told me in the interview that he was glad that Twitter had suspended him. Now, this may have been cope at the time, but he sounded really genuine about the fact he was like, I was looking for an exit from Twitter and I'm actually kind of glad. Like, not exactly said it in these terms, but like, I've got my life back. And of course, what happens a couple of months later, he's unsuspended and he's tweeting away dozens of times a day. And it's just like, to me, looks like very compulsive behavior that isn't actually he's probably aware that it's not making him happy. And, and and it made me feel more, it did change my opinion to him because it did make me feel like you're not entirely in control of this. I do feel sorry for you, actually, that you you would have been, it would have been better for you had Elon taken your Twitter away, not given you more of your delicious attention crack. Yeah, I can't remember, Matt, did you hear the episode with James Lindsay in it? No, I didn't get you to that one. Yeah. No. Because Helen puts to him that he, like it's a, the tone of the interview is is interesting because you're you're not being aggressive with him, which I also think is a good idea because he would have responded like in the Dr. Phil <laughs> and the view clip and nobody needs to hear that. But because you were being more friendly to him, when you put the point to him about feuding with the Holocaust memorial and what that's the Auschwitz Museum, yeah. Never argue with the Auschwitz Museum on Twitter. That's a rule for life. Yeah, he he seemed unusually, uncharacteristically, to be slightly apologetic about it. Like, well, I wasn't really feuding. I was just taking issue with one of the, and we'll we'll see if they actually do that. But he did seem to recognize how that looks <laughs> like to normal people. If you're going home to your parents and being like. Yeah, so I'm currently in a feud with the uh yeah, the Holocaust memorial site. But you know, don't don't listen to the naysayers about that. So that was interesting to me, you know, getting a more human response. And like if you look at Jordan Peterson's Twitter behavior since he's brought back, like that's not it's not good for him. He's like tweeting every couple of minutes about like different headlines that he's he's just come across. Like it it, it does look like a bunch of them have issues with compulsive behavior, including Elon. So, Yeah, I did feel, again, I said just about feeling sorry for James Lindsay to some extent. He did also say that he's like persona non grata on the right as well, which was really interesting to me because that's not my perception of it at all. But I just think what often happens with those people who spiral out online is that they alienate more and more people and they become, and it's really, being ostracized is really horrible. And without a kind of group of normie friends online or like a normie job, like one of the people I interviewed who came off, I think a lot better is Ibram Kendi, another one, a person that you've decoded. 
And one of the things he said is like, I'm an academic. And that's his primary identity is like, I'm an academic. I fundraise for my Boston Center for Anti-Racist Research. Now, I think he's got some pretty kooky ideas. I think the idea of a department of anti-racism just sounds impossibly unworkable. And the idea of no neutrality, everything is racist or anti-racist is just, you know, is, is impossible in practice. But his primary identity is not reply guy. And this is just like this whole series is a big lesson about like touching grass, essentially, that it will help you when, and he has been through, you know, lots of the kind of more spirally people kind of talk about the dunking they've been through. And it's true. Like, I do think people mocked James Lindsay in a very cruel way. I mean, I may have been one of them uh, from time to time, but like he, he did, you know, he did experience a huge amount of mockery. And, but at the same time, Ibram X. Kendi's, you know, getting death threats, you know, being, being put in public enemy number one on the Tucker Carlson show in America is really not, you know, a good thing for your health. But the fact that he could go away to a whole group of people who are his people and have a completely different life, I think was incredibly healthy for him. Like, I, it's, it's the only thing that makes me feel better about the whole thing is that some of the, the bad gurus obviously are incredibly rich and successful and they get a huge amount of affirmation. But I just, I am, I'm clinging to the fact that I hope it doesn't make them happy. And I don't know if that's, do you think that's true, Matt? Do you think any of the people that you've covered who are a bit, who are in the bad side are actually whole and enjoy and like can just watch a sunset with their, you know, beloved family and enjoy it? Do you think they feel that kind of, those kind of emotions? Yes and no, because um, like, first of all, we, we completely came to the same point of view as yourself with regard to Imbra and X Kendi, both about his, some of his policy suggestions are quite extreme and, and I, I think quite silly, but in the way he comes across, he's very much as an academic. So it's interesting that that he made a big point about that and not guru-like at all. And I think that identity is really helpful for keeping you grounded. And I, I suspect that for you or for a journalist in general, you know, you you, you have an, an identity with that, which which is important and would probably stop you getting sucked into various attention <laughs> feedback cycles. Oh, sorry, what's you big intake of breath? Was was am I off track? No, I, I, I was like, I would, but much I would love to say that. I don't think that's actually true of me in my 20s. I definitely went through a phase, in, and I write about this in Difficult Women in the book, where I made my life much worse by rowing with people on Twitter and getting into fights and picking fights. And right. I, I think I used it as a form of essentially kind of self-harm. Like if you want yeah. to just have a load of people telling you you're shit, and then you can go, oh, everyone hates me. I'm so, and, and like, you know, it's almost a kind of Munchausen's kind of version of it, right? Where you put yourself into the kind of victim role. But yeah, with age comes great wisdom, Matt, luckily. Um, now I can't be yeah. asked. Yeah, that's right. Being just weary helps an awful lot. My, I, I know people like my brother and Chris Batch too. They, they enjoy conflict on, on some level. <laughs> and they're, they're energized by it. Um, but, uh, you know, Chris and I have said to each other that, you know, in the, in the very small way that with us, with this podcast and the very tiny little bit of attention you, you do get, um, you know, like you kind of see how you get an insight into the various ways in which people go wrong. And a lot of people that do similar things seem, seem to be quite extreme and seem to be like haters or being whatever. And it is helpful for us to remind ourselves that we, we have a day job and this is just this thing and it doesn't matter. I think once you start really feeling like this really matters, like this, this argument you're having with the Holocaust Memorial is, is something that you've got to be in boots and all, then um, that's, that's the path of the dark side, as, as, as Yoda says. But it doesn't surprise me that James and Z can be a very nice person interpersonally where we're friendly with people who are uh, or were very good friends with him and they would often emphasize that point. And it's, of course, true that everyone contains multitudes and 
the the persona that a public figure of any kind inhabits. Um, yeah, that's it. Sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? But it's obviously not the totality of them. No, right? and and and, um, and that's what the, the same thing I think with Peterson too. The way that David Fuller talks about going to meet him in I think 2017, um, and sort of talking about this sort of bumbling eccentric professor. And that's the thing is that you can kind of see it's a bit like the kind of Arnold Rimmer, Ace Rimmer thing. You can see the path that he took where he was just, sorry, that was a very nerdy 90s sci-fi reference. Um, we love, love that, we love that for show. The, the geriatric millennials out there. But um, but like the, you can see the version where he's just like the kooky old guy who wears sort of funny waistcoats and has some slightly odd ideas about evolution or whatever it is, but is essentially like a beloved teacher. And yeah. I feel really, really sad he could have been that person and he's he's cho- he chose a different path with all the same characteristics right and and just chose different bits of his personality to emphasize and and lean into it's i think that is the yep. real tragedy of jordan peterson yeah I, I, i'm not gonna let you both away with the subtle nagging of my online twitter feed this is actually an intervention here. chris this is we, <laughs> yeah. we've actually like, all been leading up to this <laughs> there is there is a constant repeat from people that oh i <laughs> I like Chris on the podcast, <laughs> yeah, but it's just because they can't hear the tone on Twitter. That's a that's the difference. And I probably would get on from Matt Sproler. Chris, Chris, I get DMs from people. I get DMs from people who listen to the podcast and have been, in their minds, abused by you on Twitter, and then they DM me. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> control your wife. Yeah, I can't stop him. I can't stop him. But yeah, so I have sympathy for for those uh, people so inclined to argue with people online, whatever it is like to be one of them. But that aspect of having like. A degree, one of, uh, what's the word, like healthy self-disregard, like knowing that you are not the the next Galileo, right? That genuinely, I'm very well aware of that. And, and like Matt and I are quite content to be middle-brow academics. Uh, Eric Weinstein referred to me as a middle-brow academic at one point and I was like well that's fine <laughs> that's fairly fairly accurate description um but he took it as an insult right because I'm not in the genius class from his perspective and that that does seem to be something that like is inoculating to a certain extent like if if you have that tendency to to be willing to entertain critiques and to see yourself as like you know when you're getting very up on your high horse on something that you were also slightly comical, and I, I think. Oh, like- I definitely feel like that about America. Like I, the other thing that obviously happens is that the gurus do tend to be American, and I do think there is just a cultural difference of Britain. I think particularly has got tall poppy syndrome, where it's like, oh, hark at you, you know, who do you think you are? And we just anybody who kind of puts themselves forward, you know, oh, she's no better than she ought to be. Like, there's a whole cultural discourse about basically people just sort of loving themselves that we just don't like. So you get these absurd interviews with celebrities where they have to pretend to be like other people, even though they're sitting in a big pile of gold like smog. And I just think America is far more okay with, I'm here, I'm great, I'm rich. Did I mention, like, it's very interesting. Like, I think Dave Chappelle is an incredibly good comedian, but the comedy is always based around, like, I'm really rich. And I just, it doesn't, I, well, I saw him in Britain a couple of months ago. It doesn't quite work as well in Britain because you're like, well, don't don't go on about it, Dave. I mean, come on. There's <laughs> no need to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, because... In the series, um, people are touchy about certain kind of subjects, right? Like you can see it 
in like Robert Wright recently spoke to Brett Weinstein and it was a, a fairly uh, contentious interview because he was just calling him on a very specific issue. But like the direct questioning was not appreciated. James Lindsay cut off David Fuller whenever he suggested that he would put his impossible conversations into practice on an episode and speak to a critic that he'd been mean to online. So like in general, the gurus tend to regard criticism as bad faith motivated and coming from a negative space. And I know that even the people that we regard as like, or, you know, we talked about candy. So if you bring up topics that are uncomfortable, like for example, the fees that they are paid for talks, which can be quite substantial and which seem counter to the argument about capitalism being this terrible system that we must have. I know that there is the little cartoon in my head of, oh, interesting, you criticize capitalism, yet you participate in it. But, but there is the fact that like, there's degrees, right? And if your speaking fee is like in the five-figure category, I think you're, you're, you're doing capitalism right. And so in that case, like, you talk to Candy, and you raise the issue about the fees paid. And in the episode, it goes by quickly, right? Kind of like his answer to me was a very, very textbook deflection of the issue. And is that something like that we just have to accept that like the gurus won't accept criticism and that even in the case where they don't display all of the toxic characteristics, that they basically can very easily present any harsh criticism as you're trying to get them. Like, why are you trying to take me down or, or my enemies take me down with this point of view? It's a very winding question, but um, try to find that. No, but it's, it speaks to one of the things that is definitely one of the biggest changes that I've seen in the 20 years that I've been in journalism, which is people are so much more media literate now. They're so much more narrative literate than they, they were in 2000s, just in exposure to a huge amount more. They just have so many more preconceptions about what you're going to ask. You know, I always talk about the idea that when I want to do profiles, what I would love to do is find someone who's essentially an untilled field. And I've done a couple of profiles like that. I profiled a guy who was an explosives expert who was in his 80s who liked to blow things up in his quarry. And he was great because he just didn't have any filter whatsoever. He was like, I'm an explosives expert. Do you want to go and blow stuff up? And yes, I did. But most of the time you're, you're in, in talking to people who are very either media trained in the case of professional politicians and things like that, or people who are very aware that they think you're going to come away with a particular story. And that's a real challenge. You have to find a way as a journalist of asking those questions in a way that doesn't just trigger boring instant defensiveness. So with James Lindsay, you know, I just was very open about the fact, I was like, look, James, you know, people are going to say you're arguing with the Auschwitz Museum. That is the actions of a, of a crazy person. And like, but tell them, you know, you must have had a reason for doing it. So help me understand what it is. Like, what did you think you were getting from that? Rather than being like, answer the question. And actually they're kind of, interrogative kind of Paxman style interview is doesn't really kind of work anymore because as you say you just run straight into people's media train walls but you know Kendi I said to him you know you talk in the book about racism and capitalism being the conjoined twins and how does that square with taking 20 grand from a merchant bank and he said look you know corporations are people uh, and I uh, you know, I think if I can reach someone in the corporation, and um, I think we had a c continuing discussion, it didn't kind of really go much further than that. So we put a representative sample of that conversation in the, in the thing. People have got to hear that conversation and make up their own mind about it. Like even if you think that's a deflection, it's a useful thing to hear. But it is mm -hmm. an increasing problem. I think I'm having as somebody who sits on the kind of 
I think I describe myself to Aaron Rabinovitz as woke skeptic. You know, that people are so full of this howling criticism of the right that they just think they just go into lockdown mode and you mustn't criticize the left at all. And the same thing happens on the other, like, other side that because people are really aware of the attack line used against them, and that's the attack line used against Kendi, right? You're a hypocrite. You say you're against capitalism, and yet you're wearing shoes. Checkmate. Um, but, but you have to, you have to, and sometimes the best way to do it is to acknowledge the elephant in the room and just say, you know, I'm going to, like, I want to hear your answer on this. What's your, what is your answer on this? You, and I like frame it actually in a more um, collusive way of saying, you must have heard this criticism, right? Because what you, what people want absolutely is is certainty. I, I, you know, I'm going to have to put this in because we have to give you the chance to respond to this. Here it is, and then they know you're not trying to hoodwink them. It's not a gotcha. You're not trying to get them. You are trying to get them on record with their response to this very common criticism, and that's a job I don't think I would have had to do in journalism in quite the same way a decade ago. But people are really aware of of what the potential outcomes might be. So actually, the best thing usually is just to say, "This is what I'm going to put in the program." Like, tell me, this is your chance to tell me what you think. Yeah. And that famously went very well for you recently when you asked someone for a comment on an article that you had had, had written about the art industry. So right, but you, but that's that, again that's about fairness. And like having worked for an American magazine now for a couple of years, I really appreciate their madly rigorous fact checking process. Uh, which is an incredibly awkward experience. Like I have this thing, I was thinking if I ever go and lecture journalism students again, stop me if I told you this before, but I think every journalism student should get into a lift and face the wrong way and face all the people who are already in the lift and just stare them down. Because that is the best training you can possibly have for journalism is overcoming social conformity and the unwritten codes that we all have and feeling really, really awkward and embarrassed and doing it anyway. Um, and that's what you have to, and like, that's what you have to do with the BBC. You have to ask people the challenge questions. That's what they're called. You know, that's what you're doing if you're Atlantic fact checking. You have to say, I'm going to say this, this I'm going to shade you like this, this, and this. And then, and then you have it. Here's your chance to respond. And people don't want to do it, not because necessarily they're biased, but just because it's really uncomfortable to say, I think you're a charlatan. I'm going to say you're a charlatan. What do you say to that? Like, who wants to, who wants to do, what kind of sociopath wants to do that? Don't. Don't answer that. <laughs> I can I can see you looking with a glint in your eye. Yeah, well, not me, that's for sure. Um, yeah, you know, we've had a few chats with gurus who have exercised their right to reply, and I've come away from them thinking exactly the same thought that I'm not the kind of psychopath that could could easily do that. Like, it's not a natural human thing. I know I should be challenging them. I should be, and I, I kind of try a little bit, but. Um, I, I'm I'm like a I'm like a limp fish. I don't know. It's it's so it's just doesn't come naturally. Uh, yeah. Well, they, there's uh, I I I'm more comfortable with it to some extent, but maybe not as as much as you, Alan. But the there's two related questions I haven't. I suppose the more relevant for what we're talking about is so long form podcasts are a thing. I don't know. You know, people have indulgent unedited conversations with people that they like about specific topics um and you know we have mixed feelings uh, about it um but i i'm curious when it comes to like the example which currently is center of my mind is lex friedman is planning to interview a host of controversial people he already has famously interviewed kanye west and he is planning to interview Andrew Tate and, you know, Ben Shapiro, various political firebrands. Now, 
the thing I'm curious about from a journalist's point of view, where you have done long form interviews with like Jordan Peterson, and, and how do you feel about that format? Is it just indulgent or does it give the opportunity to see things that, you know, uh, a more traditional journalist interview because there is the anticipation that you're going to challenge them on various points of controversy. Like, how much do you think love is important in an interview? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the question. Are you increasing love with your interviews? Uh, what What do you think? I actually, one of the little clips we've got in the thing we call the built top is, oh no, maybe it's in the IDW, it is that kind of, this podcast is seven hours. For some, that's too long. For some, that's too short. For others, it's just right. And it's just like, I think it's one of those really interesting examples that to the Radio 4 mainstream BBC audience, they'll be like, seven hours on a podcast? Of course that's too long. But, you know, that's, that to, to a lot of people it is, it turns out too short. I think it's... um. I think a lot of this story has to do with podcasts, actually. And I do say at one point during the series, you know, yes, everybody in this series has a podcast because they do a couple of things. And they, they just, for first start, they really enable the parasocial relationships, right? You get them so much more of a sense of somebody when you're both hearing their voice and their intonation and their accent and their affect and all of that stuff. And also the bits of your life that inevitably creep in when you're just, you know, like your love of nuts, for example, the nuts, kind of stuff yeah. that just you just learn along the way. Um, so I don't think necessarily the kind of goal, the current age of gurus could happen without podcasts and neither could it happen in the sense that the charisma is often conveyed interpersonally. You want to see them being charismatic at people um, or indeed at the, at the listener. And also just the sheer amount of time that you're spending with these people. You know, some of these, if you listen to all of Lex's content, most people don't spend, if they've got a job and a family, they don't spend that much time with their friends. You know, you could have had people that like your best man at your wedding and you wouldn't spend as much time with them as you spend with Lex Friedman telling you about whatever it is that he's got to tell you about. And so I think that all of those things are actually changed in the last 10 years and they probably do account for a large amount of the picture that we're looking at now. But, um, I don't mind. I don't mind a, a long form interview. The thing is, I, I object to in the case of Andrew Tate, and we talked about Andrew Tate and whether or not to cover him in the series. I don't think he is interesting or insightful enough to merit that long an interview, right? I think if you interview Ben Shapiro and he tells you about setting up the Daily Wire, what it's like to work in the conservative ecosystem, how he's built this incredible brand, you know, what it's like being a Jewish person in that space when so many people are anti Semites and the huge amount of death threats. Like, there's lots of things I would really like to peer. I don't know whether or not Ben Shapiro would be honest about those things, but he is a smart and interesting guy who's done things that I don't agree with, but I think there's a lot there. Andrew Tate is, as I think you've said many times before, a kind of, you know, grifting misogynist with a fake university who, you know, I, it stands in front of these supercars. You don't know if he's just hired them for the day, he, like how much of the financials are actually even true. It's impossible to to know any of that stuff. And he doesn't really have any great insight into the world beyond bitches need a smack and like i just don't know what you're gonna give get over seven hours of that like it's not like you know at least peterson's views on gender which by the way i think are often quite loopy like uh, you know are based on having read some stuff and thought about some stuff and some bad readings of evolutionary psychology that you could then unpack but i just don't see what's i, I mean if he does it yeah. it'll be fascinating because i think lex freeman is just gonna like get about 45 minutes in and then be like right so bitches eh what what do they need uh Oh, okay, great. But like, what, 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 what content is he gonna is he gonna fill in that time? Yeah, it's a bit like I mean, he's so much more toxic, so it's, it feels unfair to make this comparison. But it's like Paris Hilton, like you know, just famous for being famous. I don't know what I'd 
ask her either. Um, but yeah, like you said, even with these gurus that are terribly, terribly wrong, at least at least they're interesting in some ways. They've got something to talk about. Yeah. So yeah, Lex. But I, uh, you know, maybe he's got a massive. A bit- maybe we're all being very rude, and he's got an enormous intellectual hinterland, and he's going to be like, "Well, actually, I feel this is all grounded in Hegelianism," and we're all going to go, "Oh, oh, I see. Mm. Thank you, Andrew. Great, great thoughts." But it- but it, it, it does tell us like I think about Lex's editorial decisions because I feel like, am I being unfair? But it seems to me like he wants to interview whoever is famous at the moment, whoever's Well, you know, he coverage. follows two people on Twitter. Have you seen this? This is one of my favorite things in the world. He follows two people on Twitter, Vladimir Zelensky, obviously from Ukraine, and, and like the Russian official government account. And it's just like, all right, so those are your two interview targets then, are you? Like you're doing the classic bad journalism thing of like sucking up to the person who you want to get access to but it's just like but also i like the way that you've just taken both sides there maybe you are the person to broker the peace agreement we've all been hoping for in 2023 it's mm. just it's just he like who thinks he is who's who's spicy like your 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 kind of decision about who to interview should go beyond who's spicy and actually i did have this conversation in the podcast with leah heilpern who's a crypto guru she's jewish herself i was like would you interview kanye west now and she's like, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, but he's just in this full-blown, bipolar, manic phase, anti-Semitism. Like, what is, and I said this to Lex on Twitter, like, what is there left to get out of him? He's going to come on and say he loves Hitler. Like, you just, that's it. That's what he does now. And I said, what about Richard Spencer? And she's like, yeah, I'd interview a neo-Nazi. And I'm just like, but why? But why? And I just, <laughs> it's just a fundamentally, just a clash of ideologies where she just wants to talk to someone because they're interesting and spicy. And I just apart from the ethics of it, I'm just not sure what, I know what neo-Nazis think. There are quite a lot of history books that really outline a lot of that ideology. You know, like go away and read, you know, a few books, but we can read Lex's favourite book about the boys of the rise and fall of the third Reich. Like, it's like, oh, but, you know, say what you want about the Nazis, at least they wrote stuff down about what they wanted. They didn't hide it. Like, we we're all very aware of it. Um, so I just, I don't understand that kind of content brain, I guess. Yeah, that's, the, the content brain is a good, term for it and i i i think the equations that people are making about things getting attention or that like just finding out more about what people want to say there's this notion that if you spend a lot of time with somebody and you talk to them you'll you'll break through their shell right but in some cases first of all there aren't very deep layers like the anti-semitism is fundamentally part of the person's character like that's that's the stuff that they're interested in like nick fuentes maybe if you spend a week with him you'll find out that he also likes ice cream and he you know has quite a penchant for cooking thai curry or whatever but i don't care because the thing i care about with nick fuentes is that he's a anti-semitic neo-fascist right that's why i don't like him and and that's why he's a concerning figure and it 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 does feel this elevation of like getting to the real person behind the hateful ideology it's it's not invaluable louis Farouk did it very does it very well people who profile terrible people do it no, I think that Louis Theroux neo-Nazi program, I think it was a complete bust. And I love, you know, Louis Theroux. Uh, you know, I just think, you know, his his Savile programs were brilliant. His, you know, his, his Paul Daniels, his Christian, like people who were kind of cult figures, he did really well. And his stuff inside prisons, incredibly good, like places that you just are kind of weird, but you want to go to. But his neo-Nazi program 
not, fail for two reasons to me. One was, as you say, that sometimes the shell is literally all there is and you don't penetrate behind the shell to like the cuddly guy who just, you know, his mother smacked him once and that's why he became an ethno-nationalist. And the second thing is that they turned it back on him and they turned him into a spectacle and started live streaming him walking around. And like, that's very uncomfortable. Oh. You know the one I mean with Quentin. You mean the yeah. the recent one with Big Alaska and Big Alaska. Yeah, yeah. I, I was think, I was thinking of the previous one where he was standing in the garage and the people started asking him if he was Jewish. Oh, with Eugene he, Terblanche, that one. Yeah. Yeah, like the the kind of classic, <laughs> classic Louis for but the the more recent one. I agree. There was an element that at least they were trying to use him for content as well, and um, and. Like that, that seemed a harder thing to navigate. But in any case, like I still think he did it in a much more responsible way. And I'm willing to challenge people and make uncomfortableness than is normal with the, the more Lex Friedman side of the pool when it comes to indulgent interviews. So, yeah, it's, I, I guess we're probably, there isn't that much <laughs> worry disagree that like you you should include some pushback if you want to interview neo-nazis it's a very controversial position to stick out um but well no i think you guys are talking about something a bit more general and robert wright who we've got a lot of time for actually has like formalized this concept and he calls it cognitive empathy you have to practice cognitive empathy and understand you know where these distasteful characters who might be your opponents and might be doing bad things that you think are bad understand where they're coming from and understand um, what motivates them. And he believes that, um, say, you know, Western policy with respect to Ukraine and Putin is, is failing at practicing that standpoint taking. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably an interesting question. But for me, I just I think he's wrong. I think in many ways it just doesn't really matter in a way. You know, like I understand that Vladimir Putin looks at the world differently. I understand that he sees the West as degenerate, that he sees himself as, you know, I, you know, I'm sure my perceptions are not perfectly accurate, but I get a sense. But ultimately, you know, these people that think very differently from ourselves, they're going to do the things they're going to do, that they've taken the public positions or concrete actions that they've taken and in the end, it doesn't really matter if they like ice cream or if you know they've got issues with their mother or something. That's not really the point, is it? I know what you mean. And I always felt this about Jeremy Corbyn, the former Labour leader, who every time there was any kind of conflict would call for a peaceful resolution. And you had to be like, but other sometimes you can only have a peaceful resolution if both sides want a peaceful resolution. If what Vladimir Putin wants is to take large bits of Ukrainian territory and you don't want him to do that, there is no compromise position. Like he's either going to have to win or lose. And I think that's... That is the drawback to that model is that if we, which is kind of also the Lex model, if only we could all talk it out, we could all come to a reasonable compromise. And some people are unreasonable and what they want is impossible. And it's a refusal to contemplate the fact that at that point you have to do things that are morally murky, you know, like a, like a yeah. stage of war, for example. Right? Yeah, yeah. It would obviously so, be great if we could all just sit down and talk it out, but sometimes you can't. Some differences are irreconcilable and... You know, I know it does. It always sounds good to practice universal love and to practice universal understanding and empathy. These are all very nice sounding words, but we're we're against it. That's the guru's point. I was going to say it's a great yeah. way to end this section of the podcast. Is Matt comes out against the concept of love? I'm against it. I'm broadly anti. Helen, I I, I have a final gotcha question planned for you before you getcha us. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I was wondering 
because you have on occasion been the main character on on Twitter and and also in the media in general and you have famously been cancelled from such important things as the computer game Naughty Dogs <laughs> were making. So because of that experience and that specific one, that's the one that I know really created. Um, does that make you feel sympathy to a greater extent when people, a lot of the gurus are reeling against how they're treated in the mainstream and how they're presented, right? And they're very strong on the cancellation thing. And of course, I'm not saying you endorse all of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about cancellation, but when you've gone through like public criticism and and cancellation campaigns uh, personally, does it increase like the sympathy for their narrative? Uh, like in a way that like say me and Matt would not have sympathy for it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely a bias that I should um, acknowledge because that's feeling of being ostracized and the feeling of everybody just not even listening to what you're saying because they already know you're a bad person and the feeling that you um, people that you like and you think you would get on with have already heard this caricature version of you that's sort of stalking around it totally independent of you and therefore would be reluctant to speak to you and the fact that professional opportunities are closed to you that people the sort of sense of I said this to James Zinzi actually we didn't. It didn't go into the program, but I understand what it is to feel like to walk around with a kind of miasma around you. Um, this kind of feeling that there's something you might corrupt people just by touching them. It's a really horrible feeling. And it does give me an enormous amount of sympathy. I, what it, in my case, I hope it has turned me down is I feel like a bit like a reformed alcoholic in the sense that I feel like, you know, don't do what I, what I want to always say in those situations is don't lean into it. And this is the advice I always give to people who have been cancelled is like, this is a thing that happened to you. It's not who you are. And becoming professionally cancelled, as some people do, because it is quite lucrative and also out of a sense of wanting revenge and wanting the idea that one day eventually you'll triumph and everybody will admit that you were right all along. There is no justice in the world. That won't happen. You will burn yourself up in that quest for vengeance. That That is the kind of useful bit I can contribute. But that said... You know, and I know this is your academic specialty, Chris. Like the, the bonding effect of going through that is extraordinary. Like, you know, people like Jesse Single and Katie Herzog, I know that I get on with them well because partly we've been all through the same trial by fire. And they also, I know I can trust them and they know they can trust me in some way because, again, we're all aligned. We've got the same set of enemies, really. Like, that's a very powerful factor in kind of making you feel instantly a connection with people and feel that you can trust them. So, yeah, I definitely, I have a huge amount of sympathy. Um, and I also think it's one of those things where you should sort of think and reflect on your luck, that I was very lucky that I had lots of people around me. You know, one of my very good friends is Caroline Criado Perez, who went through a particularly horrible experience getting incredibly badly trolled to the extent that she had people were jailed over the threats that they were sending her. And having seen her go through that and come out the other side of it and it not define her forever has been a very powerful experience. So that is my, that is my message to the cancelled. Like, it's horrible to be cancelled, but like, you're just someone who once got cancelled. You're not professional cancellee. X Y Z. This is this is good advice, and yeah, I'll, and and like. But when you get cancelled, Chris, I hope you remember this. Well, yeah, I'm making notes. Well, fortunately, Matt and I are just uh, really purely about love and expanding that for our podcast. So we don't create enemies; we we bring them into our embrace and parasocial hug. So we don't need to worry about that. Um, and plus, we are also correct on all issues so that that's unlikely to come up these 
these things you have to factor in. <laughs> but but okay. um, well, look, literally, I do and could continue to talk to you about gurus endlessly. But the, the are you ready to is... be quizzed? Are you ready to be quizzed? <laughs> I was going to promote your series in a, in a little blurb before the through you. What kind of professionals are you? I was saying the series, it's, it's very good. People can find it on BBC Radio 4. Um, half of it is out and the other half is coming after Christmas. If you like this podcast, you will definitely like Helen's series. So yep. imagine, uh, imagine, the, imagine our podcast, but much, much shorter with professional, pro- <laughs> professional production <laughs> values. <laughs> It's basically my, all the bad bits gone and just just condensed into a good kernel of thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it genuinely is extremely good and um, nothing I, about nuts I, though. You won't hear about Helen's punch no, nuts. Nothing. No. But you did hear you say that you would enjoy cake in response to somebody saying that you might cry over. There we go. A little insight into the woman behind the journalist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah, great series. Thank you for coming on and talking to us again. And hopefully you stick around in this neck of the woods even after the series is done. Gurus, I mean. Not not this podcast. You don't have to stay <laughs> forever, prison forever in Zencast. <laughs> no, um, well, you're just visiting. You're just visiting the guru world. Like we live here. You're going to be off writing yeah. about Ukraine or AIDS or COVID yeah. or something. You know, I know how you journalists. Are. I know we're so. We're so- you just adopted the darkness. <laughs> you were born in it. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, you, you were sounding like you were wrapping up and finishing the show, but we're coming. No, I was just thinking this. Yeah, we have the most important part because the other thing that people don't know about Helen is that she's a Riddler-esque figure. She's a quiz master of extraordinary talents. Like, you imagine your best pub quiz person. Then multiply it by 1,000, and you're not even approaching the skill at which Helen has at constructing quizzes. And she kindly offered given all the stuff that she's done with gurus, to make a little quiz for me and Matt about gurus, a kind of Christmassy guru quiz. That's yeah. that's fair, Helen. I, yeah. I haven't picked you up. That's how, oh, you, that's how you describe it. I mean, you've set up expectations well too. But I thought it'd be nice. Um, it's basically like a year in review, actually several years in review of listening to this podcast. So and and to each other actually. So we'll see whether or not you've been you've been doing that. But oh, I shit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, are, you, are you ready? Okay. Well, well, but before we start, I have a point of order. Um, okay. Can I can I have a drink? I, you, <laughs> I, like, you can. You can. This Actually, is a I drinking a drink. quiz. This is a drinking quiz. Like I know oh. it's mid morning where you are, Helen. Hold on. Hold on. Even better. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Fantastic. Lovely. It's Christmas. You can see Very that it's Christmas. Very festive. I know it's probably okay. like ten o'clock in the morning where you are. No, so I'm just not. Pretend. I'm not having whiskey. I've got to do a full no. day's work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just just think of this as kombucha. Oh, look, a Christmas hat. Wow. Okay, so for audio listeners, there's a Christmas hat which has emerged. Um, so this, this is very Christmassy themed. Um, Could not be more, more Christmassy. Okay, ready for the gurus round. Okay. So ready. What are the, what are the rules of, of this? <laughs> I'm going to ask you a... questions and Chris is going to know them instantly because he's a freak. Wow. And you're going to be yeah. like, well, how do you know that, Chris? And until we get to the last round, Matt, where you're going to surge back in a, like a late overtaking stage, and it's going to be very, it's going to bring okay. love and peace and reconciliation. Um, All right, I'm and just, your listeners have... can play along. 
we don't have buzzers or anything, so should we just raise our hands if we know the answer? Or honestly, just just say and, and argue amongst yourself. Play co- play cooperatively. I think is probably the nicest way to do this. <laughs> that's, um, that's true. It, it's not a competition, Chris. We're, we're a team. We do everything together. Um, okay, okay. Number one, hmm. who was sorry, not beautiful? Oh, I know. Oh, <laughs> oh I know. It's. It's it's cooperative. Discuss amongst yourselves. It's a larger lady. It's a larger lady. It was a larger lady. It was Jordan Peterson who said this, right? No? Right, but he is obviously beautiful. So who was he talking about? He was talking about Sports Illustrated model woman. Right. Well, I confidently predicted here was that you were going to get to Sports Illustrated model and then you weren't going to know her name and I was going to be able to call you both sexist for just treating all Sports Illustrated models as if they were just one giant woman, but they're not. She's got a name, Chris. <laughs> does have you should know this, Chris. I'm yeah. not gonna. I'm just gonna be a cover because that will go even worse. So, yes, uh, you have successfully stumped us that we okay. don't know. It's you, me, new. You can have half a point for that. It's you, me, new. Um, okay. okay. Question two. Do I, get half a, sense- do I get half a point as well? I knew the same yes. stuff that Chris did. Yes, okay. yes, you both get right. the same half point. <laughs> like, no, I, I've got my down as half and me down as half. I, I'm keeping it separate. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is this could go very badly. Okay, number two, the sense maker Jamie Wheel wanted to write his PhD thesis on a new concept of time. Was it called a polychronic quantum epistemology, b first person phenomenological chronology, c externalized anthropomorphic patternicity, or d fucking crazy time balls? <laughs> That's really hard. I know um, the answer. Oh, <laughs> fuck you, Chris. How can you know the answer to that? That's Insane. You go first, Matt. You go first. <laughs> um, I'll choose the last one. Fucking crazy time balls. I'm going to choose that one. It, the answer is A. It's A, oh, isn't it? It's polychronic quantum epistemology, yes. That's, I'm a, quantum. I mean, again, this is one of the quizzes where if you win, you also lose. Um, hey, <laughs> a, a fun bit of trivia, since I, I won't yeah. know any of this trivia, but I have my own trivia, so it doesn't really matter. I, I was actually approached by... Something of a crank. He wanted to do a PhD on the same topic, literally the same topic, like like a new conceptualization of time. And he I, he came in and he came in. We had a couple of meetings, and he was talking to me. He had all these documents and bits of paper, and I couldn't understand what he was talking about. But it was just this whole like all of our understandings of time were all wrong. And his PhD was going to be on a whole new version of time. So it was basically Jamie Well. But that, uh, by the way, Helen, that amazing thing there is that you said what that was, polychronic something or other, but it's the sense makers have just this amazing ability to say things that your mind cannot retain it. It just slips off. So like I can recognize it, but I can never say what that term is. I know, I might as well have gone like blah, 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 blah. yeah, polychronic quantum yeah. epistemology, which makes sense when what? you break it down right the science what, of what? knowing about i don't know polychronic means i guess many times but they happen at many a quantum times. level i don't know i guess they're probably if there are supposed to be little dimensions folded up at the quantum level then maybe they have got their own time schemes i don't know tell <laughs> us tell us tell us your distractors because i thought your distractors were very good they were very plausible what were they um this first you you didn't realize <laughs> it would take this um First person phenomenological chronology. 
See, that's, I thought that's that was good. good. That's a that's a good that's a good PhD title. Yep. I could plausibly do a PhD in that. Um, externalized anthropomorphic patternicity. Beautiful. Mm, yeah, that's, that's very great. that's very sense making. Mm, do you know how I did good. this? Like to pull back the curtain on the magic is that I went through your interview and I just noted down all the words that were longer than eleven letters and I was like mashed them together. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, that's incredible. incredible. What, I'm pretty sure that's what they do. They just grab big words <laughs> and they mash them together. What's what's long? Okay, okay, Matt, stop distracting Helen. Sorry. Question number three. <laughs> Mark Carey, M. Jackson, Alessandra Antonello, and Jacqueline Rushing are the authors of a paper which had a profound effect on one of your gurus. It was called What Gender and Science? Oh, Chris, you already look so confident. <laughs> Matt, why don't you mm -hmm. have a go first? It was called What Gender and Science? What's the question again? Mark Carey, M. Jackson, <laughs> Alessandra Antonello, and Jacqueline Rushing are the authors of a paper which had a profound effect on one of your gurus. It was called What Gender and Science? You are going to kick yourself when I tell you. Uh, okay. So, so is the question which guru? Or <laughs> no, what's no. The no what's, the, what's, the, what's the missing <laughs> word? The title map. <laughs> oh, sorry, what? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was called What Gender and Science. No, that wasn't like a Jamie oh. Wheel title. Like, here's okay. my paper on what, what gender and science. No. Sorry, sorry. A, a blank gender and science. Blank gender and science. Um, I'm going to go with race. Race, gender, and science. Silly, silly, Matt. Silly, Bless Matt. Me. Years, years. Gender, <laughs> sexuality. It is, of course, the other great IDW session, feminist glaciology. Well done, Chris. Okay. Oh, well, that was the feminist glaciology paper. You're kidding. That's of course it was. <laughs> oh, God. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I can't believe you don't have that pinned up above your bed as one of the greatest triumphs of science. Um, okay, I number four. The subject of many IDW gurus' obsession this year once received an email that said, 10 held by H for the big guy. Who was the big guy? Oh, well, that's okay. Can I, I get to go first, right? Because I have a handicap. Um, yeah, because I can also see from Chris's <laughs> smug face on video that he knows the answer. Like, that's that's the, answer. the tell here. I want to play poker with you so much, I could take so much money off you. <laughs> Are Go you still that. keeping score, Chris? Are you still keeping score? score? Yeah, of yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I have a handicap. I get to go first. Um, <laughs> so that's if that was Hunter Biden about Joe Biden? Joe Biden's it the is. answer? Yeah, yep. I'm going to assume that Chris, you knew that was Joe Biden because you referenced it earlier. So I thought, oh shit, he knows that one. Okay, I did, but I'll let him. I'll let him get it. It Let's, doesn't matter that you know. Right. I, I answered <laughs> it. I answered it first. So, yeah. which um, number five? Which guru wrote this trenchant and hilarious satire? Our African ancestors were the first to engage in breathing. By that logic, I think by breathing today, we are engaging in cultural appropriation of the first Homo sapiens. And so, the only way I will ask you to stop being racist is to suffocate to stop breathing. <laughs> the logic holds up. That's, logic. <laughs> that's, Is that a multiple choice one, or no, we the two? That's got to be the most heavy-handed satire I've ever heard. So that's God sad level. That's God yeah. sad. It is. Uh, that's what I was going to say as well. So oh, it's, sure, sure, sure. I was. I was. Uh, is it God sad? It is, of course, God sad. It is the, the Godfather. <laughs> you just wouldn't let me have it. You couldn't let me have it. Well, you, you, you had. It's so fine. I'm confident enough, but that, that, that's amazing. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was it was the heavy-handedness that gave it away. That's how I knew. Yeah, it was the it way it just relentlessly kept pounding the dead <laughs> horse until. In, ca yeah, in case you were missing the point, just again and again. Yeah. Okay. 
Number six, who was the first ever guest on the Dark Horse podcast? Oh, I know. <laughs> you are insufferable. Ah, <laughs> Your family at Christmas must hate you. The fact that you know Chris doesn't reflect well on you. You think it does. No, but I also actually, understand why my, why my own family are annoyed because I am this person at our family quizzes where I'm like, mm, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> <laughs> so please, Scott, please. Okay, so I'll just have a guess. Um, first guess on the Dark Horse podcast. It wasn't Heller. Was it Eric? It was not Eric. No. Chris? It was Andy No. It was Andy No. no. That's bastard. You're, disturbing. You're yeah, like, he is a bastard. He is a bastard. You're right, Matt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah. Okay. You, yeah, again, another, I would say, another hollow <laughs> triumph for Chris there. Um, <laughs> Give me this. All I have. <laughs> Number seven. Which of your gurus was once married to a Christian gospel singer then known as Catherine Elizabeth Hudson? I'm available wow. to provide clues on this one because I think it is quite hard and probably you're not going to get it. Well, Chris is looking Please. stumped, so it must be yeah. hard. It is okay. hard. Uh, she was hot and cold about him, but then she escaped like a firework. She kissed a guru and she liked it. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh. Well, is, is it, is it, what's his name? The English guy we were just talking about before. Russell. Russell, Russell Brandt. Brand. Is it Russell Brandt? Brand? It yeah, was Russell Brown. Of course. It's Kate, yeah. no, it's okay. Katy Perry's original Great. name. There we go. Okay, I get, I get the point. Yep. You get the point for, oh, okay, all right. I'm, the, I'm, working for, I'm working from a handicap, Chris. Um, That's right. We established that. So, yes, okay. Both the <laughs> procedural one and a mental one. Um, next question. <laughs> okay, yeah. eight. Whose book quoted a... Eight. Whose book quoted a student describing their classes as a ancestral mode for which I was primed but didn't even know existed? Sorry, the, which student? Sorry, sorry, which who's, person? Which, who? Whose book quoted one of their own students describing their classes, their university classes, as an ancestral mode for which I was primed but didn't even know existed? Ancestral mode. Gee, that could be Jordan Peterson. It could be, it could be Brett and Heather's book because they talk about ancestry and all that nonsense. Chris, do you know the answer, by the way? You seem, you seem confident. You have a confident expression on your face. Of course I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> of course I know the answer. I'm just purely poker facing it, so you may have a chance to steal. Um, go on, which one are you going to go? You're going to go Pity, you're going to go uh, Brett and Heather? I think i gotta go. I got to go Jordan. I'm going to go for Jordan. Oh, what an error. That's oh, a bad miss. You're kidding. It's, it's there. It is a hunter's guide to the 21st century. So close, uh, Matt. So close. See, you could always taste I, it. It, it, was actually too, it felt too obvious. I thought it felt like a trick mm. question. Oh, that's the kind of thing that on would do. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I remember okay. that specific quote. So, yeah. Okay. Number nine. About which potential interviewee did Lex Friedman once claim that most journalists would, quote, push back because they're trying to signal to fellow journalists and to people back home that this, me, the journalist, is on the right side? Whereas he, Lex, would, quote, empathize with them to understand the, quote, full arc of history. Which Vladimir potential interview go, did he say I'm that go about? Vlad, I'm going to go for You're Vladimir Putin. Yep. I enjoy that level of confidence. It's a good level of confidence. Mm -hmm. Chris, is, are you similarly confident? I can't, I'm just like stuck with Kanye West, but you said potential inter yep. 
interviewee. No, it is not someone it that he has in, uh, interviewed. No, not not so far. You can't it, choose Vladimir I, Putin, by the way. You've got to choose something else because I already... Is that the rule? Well, <laughs> I think you're probably right, but I'll say Hitler. <laughs> and you would be right <laughs> to say Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No. You got it. You got it. Potentially you to be guess. You did it. Hitler's <laughs> <was> dead. <laughs> uh, you could you could have been wrong together, Matt. That's what you could have had, and instead you tricked him into you forced him into being right. Okay, number ten. Which guru wrote? I try to be very thoughtful about how and when I cry. I try to cry quietly so that I don't take up more space. And if people rush to comfort me, I do not accept the comfort. Oh, this is an easy one. I know okay. this one. Go yeah. on then, Robin D'Angelo. Oh, oh Chris, I didn't Chris. know that. I didn't know that. You see, uh, you see, you see, you see, you see, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. See, I thought I could hear this sort of vague chirruping, like. See, Chris is going on actual memories, whereas I'm going on vibes, and right, I think yeah. that that strategy, you no, know, the, uh, it's, like, it's a dark I was horse. Thinking Jordan. No, I was no. Jordan, but, I thought I would trick you with that. that. No, yeah. he loves people yeah. comforting him. He does accept the comfort. Um, well yeah. done, Matt. I put a point for you. Okay, number eleven. In making, making note, sense, Chris, make a note. <laughs> I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> In making sense of sense making, Daniel Schmachtenberger was running seventy to ninety paradigms at once. But who were the poor fools who were only running one? DMA, DMA idiots, DMA mm. idiots. It's a much more weirdly mm. specific answer than that. Weirdly Ooh. specific. Oh, have I finally defeated you both? This is very, this is a poised in trial. Yeah. I'm so excited. Right. <laughs> a very specific thing that annoys sense makers. <laughs> See, it, in my reconstructed memory, he just said most people are running just one or two paradigms. But I'm afraid it was the Quakers. What? Quakers. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Where are they going? They're just <laughs> around in silence, not hurting anybody, but only running one paradigm at once. Okay, that's good. Yes. Okay, number 12. I am, according to Wikipedia, an occult concept representing a non-physical entity that arises from the collective thoughts of a distinct group of people. What am I? Egregore. It <laughs> 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 was disturbing on a number of levels, but yes, you are, you are in fact right. <laughs> I, I, Did you know I, that? Yeah, I was going to say Egregore. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. I could have okay. waited. Right. You were just overcome with excitement. How often in your daily life do you get to say egregore? It's just not enough. Um, it's okay. true. Number 13. Which of these is not a real title of a dark horse episode? A. Becoming allergic to truth. B. Keeping sane. Brett speaks with Neil Oliver. C. The wrong side of history. Or D. Staying self-aware with Konstantin Kizin. Um, I have no idea. No idea whatsoever. What is your wild stab in the dark? Go on. Um, wrong side of history. Okay. The Constantine Kissing. You are, in, of course, correct. <laughs> 
Although I didn't really realise until I read through the whole list of Dark Horse episodes how many of them are sort of incredible cell phones. It's just it's strong. Keeping sane, Brett speaks with Neil Oliver. It's just absolutely unimpressive. Yeah, good. Really the wrong side of history, like literally. True. Yeah. yeah. If you take them, if you just take them, they apply to Brett. They're they're kind of like quite insightful. Um, I like becoming allergic to truth. I like that one. Okay, number fourteen. Whose return appearance on the Joe Rogan show did Devin Gordon describe in The Atlantic as a walrus with a persecution complex or a talking pile of gravel? That sounds like Eric Weinstein. Uh, I'm just going on vibes. Nice. Okay, Matt says Eric. Wait, what? Read that description again, Helen. You have a Jeremy Corbyn mug. Uh, carry on. No, 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 don't, don't, sorry. This is how my family <laughs> attempt to troll me is with them. Um, people have a right to be angry mugs. Um <laughs> A walrus with a persecution complex or a talking pile of gravel. That does sound like Eric, though, but just saying. Oh, no, he doesn't have a gravel uh, gravel voice. Like, that's going to be... And he's not that... Oh, I... I'm going to time you out in 10 seconds, Chris. We haven't got all day. <laughs> this isn't a sense-making episode. We haven't got all day. Oh, God, okay. I, I don't know. I, I'll say Graham Hancock, but it's not Graham Hancock. You're going to be very upset because it was, of course, Alex Jones. Oh, oh. oh of course it was. Of course. So, <laughs> that makes so much genuinely sense. upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In Lex Friedman's daily morning routine, with whom does he say he is in an open relationship? Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> Just keep your things casual, you know? Both of them are dating other people. They're going to see if it gets serious. Just, you know. Okay, I'm sensing that you're, 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 you you don't really have this one. And the answer is... No, I no, don't. Okay. Because, like, I, I do. It's there somewhere in my memory. I remember it being ridiculous. I can't remember what he said, but it might be... It's something technological. It's like his computer or Twitter or something like that. Or... Mm. I can't remember, but I'll say Twitter, but it's not Twitter. What you're trying to do is remember the specific ridiculous thing from Lex Friedman's morning routine where there are rich pickings. The answer is, of course, his electric guitar because he also plays acoustic. Oh. Uh, not Hitler, Matt. He's not in the Nobel relationship. <laughs> you see, you know, I, I think one of the things that's led me to do so well in life is the fact that I make no space in my brain for little factoids like that. Um, if I heard it, it went right in one ear and right out the other. And thank God for that. That's a beautiful question. Thank God for that. Both of those have been good. Very good. Okay. Number 16. Don't worry. We are approaching the the end. You will will be able to leave at some point and go back your lives. 16. (laughs) I'm enjoying that. I can call mine. (laughs) (laughs) Which guru once organized a competition to write the rudest possible poem about Turkish leader Erdogan, for which his own entry was... Recep Erdogan is the Turkle, never tire of rim jobs from his circle, yet his chiefest delight, now Khalifa's in sight, are the felchings he gets from Frau Merkel. I mean, just a bad poem. But uh, someone, one of the people that you've covered uh, is wrote that monstrosity of a poem. Who was it? That's, that's unbelievable. The fact that somebody would know anything about any of the things that you just mentioned, that's the thing that's puzzling me. The gurus don't know that. Yeah. Kind See, of stuff. It makes me want to say Gad Sadikin because he's the only person that would go to that much effort. No, 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 but no. You've already, well, okay. you've already asked a question about Gad Sad, so I'm using my meta 
skills. Yeah. Nasim Taleb. Oh, Nasim Taleb. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for that too. <laughs> right, you're piggybacking on Chris's answer. <laughs> yes. And yes. what's happened is much like the playground, you shouldn't have been swayed by peer pressure, Matt, because it is the wrong answer. It is, of course, <laughs> Douglas Murray. Oh, oh, fuck, it would have been Douglas Murray. That European. was the only one that I was I thinking. I was thinking Europeans. I was thinking only a European <laughs> would care about any of this stuff. About so Angela I was Merkel. thinking that's, that's like, there's like three. That, Douglas you know. Murray criticizing uh, like Erdogan. Erdogan is somewhat surprising to me though but in, in any case yeah it was a competition run by the spectator magazine um for a bonus point who won that contest oh, christopher hitchens <laughs> from beyond it's the grave chris well i don't know when he did it i don't know how long erdogan's been around it could have been 15 years ago or something so i, uh, ask I don't a, know. can i ask a little hint question was yes. it the guru, one, another one of our gurus who won it, or just a rando? It was, no, I'm not a rando. I think that's a cruel description of the person. It is not a guru. Uh, it is someone British and someone who this year had a quite spectacular fall from grace. The guy from Top Gear. I don't know if he's had a fall from Jeremy grace. Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah. Again, no, it was Boris Johnson. Oh, oh, yeah, it would be him. Of course it would be him. There was a young yeah. fellow from Ankara who was a terrific wankerer till he sowed his wild oats with the help of a goat, but he didn't even stop to thank her. Which I don't think he wrote himself, to be fair, but then that is kind of in That's keeping not. with the career of Boris Johnson. Douglas's like... was better. He should have won. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas Murray was robbed in the that. great rude poetry <laughs> competition. Okay, number 18. Believe... Mm. This is good. I, this is good. The quiz when you, like, I want to write a quiz where if you get it right, you feel bad, but if you get it wrong, you feel worse. That's the ideal quiz to me. How, okay. how, how's the scores going, Chris? How, how are the points? So it's like <laughs> neck and neck? I, I'm not going to spoil it, Matt. Just oh. uh, we'll see. We'll find out at the end. Yes. <laughs> okay. There's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance. There's a chance. There's a chance. There's always a chance. <laughs> You're going to make it out, but it's fine. 18. Uh, Eric Weinstein shares his middle name with a character from Friends. What is it? Ross. I don't know any of the names of people from Friends. What? Oh, poor Matt. I never, actually never watched a single episode of Friends. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, they do exist. <laughs> you bet, bet you're really ruining that decision now, 20 years old, Matt, I, aren't that's you? Right. That's right. <laughs> reaping what I sow. All right. It is Ross, right? It is, it is, it is Ross. I was really hoping you'd say Gunther, but it is, of course, Eric Ross uh, Weinstein. Um, okay. Number 19. Multiple choice. Which of these is not a real product sold on the Goop website? A, the Viva La Vulva Vibrator. B, the DTF Dietary Supplement. C, the This Smells Like My Bollocks Candle. Or D, the Madame Ovary Menopause Pills. Oh my God, the last two are strong contenders, aren't they? They're so implausible. Yet one of them must be actually sold on the website. Mm-hmm. This smells like my balls, candle. That's my answer, Terry. <laughs> because <laughs> it's meal. It's like it's meal. My, that's right. That's right. Yeah, your, that is actually your... available on uh, Jeremy Clarkson's farm shop website. <laughs> the rest of them are from, from Google. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> that's good. That's good to end with a solid point. Okay, number 20. To what does Sam Harris definitely not belong? That tribe. 
That's not a real question. You just wanted me to say that. You just wanted me to say that. Good of you to finally admit it, Chris. That's uh, that's very good. Okay. Um, do you want to give us the questions now before the Matt-centric bonus round? Uh, okay. Yes. So, Matt, you would have answered that yes as well, right? You would, sure. you would have answered that. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, uh, the scores... Eight mats are easy to count up. <laughs> Not so many. <laughs> So, Matt, you have six and a half points. I have... A solid showing. So, if you handicap me, I have ten and a half. If you don't do that unfair action, I have 13 and a half out of 20. So, I'm just... Either score is available. I've kept the record. <laughs> just for, right, okay, just for completing good. the seat. Okay, well, here are the, um, so I, well, I said to Matt, like, what, are, what, what subjects do you think you plausibly might have more knowledge on than your knowledge of, like, weird internet beef? And you picked, Matt, literature and Ireland in an attempt to troll Chris, which I approve of, heartily. This is how no, we no, find no, out. No, that no, 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 I don't know. <laughs> no, I just said I know, I bet I know more about Ireland than Chris knows about Australia, but this is a quiz about Ireland. Uh, no, but you've listened to podcasts about Irish history and stuff. I haven't done that. <laughs> so no, you probably, I know that podcast, mate. You'd give it to me. And there's like 20 episodes on like that Irish agreement in 1918 and blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you this. I better know more about Irish literature than you do. But anyway. Yes. Well, 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 we can't change your questions. Yeah. Let's, let's, so, let's put that proposition to the test, Matt. That, that unwarranted confidence may or may right. not pay off. Okay. Matt, I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna like... give you two points per <laughs> question for this because then you can catch up. So these are worth two. Okay. This is, this is awful. Like, <laughs> like it's better. You... I feel like I'm being set up for a big fall here because, like, I explained it. I wasn't good at facts or names or dates, <laughs> but also concepts. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not good at uh, any uh, of these things. Stop. Stop your pre your pretty excuses because I I am certain that I will not beat you in the literature area. So so just just have confidence. Have confidence. If it's, okay. I'm just worried. It's trivia. I hate trivia. Anyway, go on. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So question one: Estragon and Vladimir are here. Who is missing? Well, I know that's from Samuel Beckett's. Um, waiting for Godot, but oh, I don't Godot. know. Godot. <laughs> oh yeah, Godot. I guess <laughs> yes. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. That was me, Matt. You got it after. <laughs> so, I think that was very much an assist from Matt, and then you tapped uh, it into the goal. I think no, you no, should no, both give... have the point. All right, I'll yeah. give you. A, I'll give you a one, Matt, and okay. I'll give me a two because <laughs> obviously, obviously, it's Godot. Obvious. Uh, Okay, number two. Uh, who took over as Taoiseach of Ireland on December 17th? Sorry, as, as what is Isle of Ireland? Taoiseach, Prime Minister of Ireland. Oh, I don't know what a Taoiseach is. Um, no, I don't know the answer to that one. The best yeah. thing is the fact that actually Chris, we've discovered, has been pretending to be Irish now in a successful ruse that has lasted many years, is not going to know this one either. He's actually a citizen of the UK, I think, technically. I mean... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This this is much more embarrassing for me than it is for for you, but I I have no idea who that is. There's a new one? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Who is it, Helen? 
It's Leo Varadka again. Oh, uh, I, I, yeah, that's <laughs> true. So, yeah, I, I didn't know that. But Matt also didn't know it. Just note that. He also didn't know it. But right, but I, he's not. I mean, do you know who the current Prime Minister of Australia is? Um, I think that... Do you know Matt? <laughs> <laughs> His initials are AA, I believe. Just to give you a clue. Um, Aldous Albi. <laughs> Oh, it's I can Anthony visual. Albanese. Wait, Albanese. Yeah. I can know the prime minister. I'm Australia. Hold on, is this true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, the name. In, Chris, in his defence, they change really, really frequently. Like the last, the last Taishak I know is Bertie Ahern. That's how. That's that's how little attention I I pay to that. But, Chris, um, Chris, they're all just like middle-aged guy, fat guys in. White shirts and You've ties. You've mentioned like, the movie, Matt. You've said his name. Ter- oh my god, that's well, just oh well, yeah. Alan, this is terrible. So zero to both of us, and let's yeah. say nothing more. Yeah, let's this. never mention that again. Okay, number three: Dmitri, Ivan, and Alexei are brothers. What is their surname? Karamazov. 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 What? Okay. <laughs> um, I I got close. I got close, but that's like the person trying to blag it in a. Yeah, um, no, Matt was right. Karamazov. Yeah, yeah. But this is this is like a this is like an IDW question format. Yeah, they all love Dostoevsky. They love Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky in the Bible. These are the two things they love. <laughs> the only two books you need to read. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which Irish writer's middle names were Augustine Aloysius? Oh. Augustine, come on! It would be very embarrassing for you not to get <laughs> this obvious question. I mean, no one actually knows this, so this is basically spin the wheel of like famous Irish yeah. writers of the twentieth well, century. Go I'm going to go for James Joyce just because he's okay. famous. Yeah. Chris, who are you going for? Um, Alleged Jim Irishman, Jimmy? Chris Kavanagh. Who yeah. are you going just, for? Just, just tell us any. Just tell us any <laughs> the name of any famous Irish writer, Chris. But it, but it, but it isn't Samuel Seamus Heaney, he was a he was a poet, but I'm sure he wrote short stories or something at some point. So maybe him? I'm afraid the points go to Matt. It was in fact James Joyce. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> Congrats, that, Matt. It was a shot in the dark, but you know. It hit Good. the target. Okay, yeah. final one, which I actually think, unfortunately, this is a Chris-centric question. I think you'll get this, and Matt won't. It's an unfair one to end on. But whose cookbook was nearly called the Peas Process? I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do know this. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's called, calling this Irish literature is, I will admit, a bit of a stretch. Yeah. No, I'm going to pass on this one. Chris? Pass. It, it's Jerry Adams. It, it is Jerry, Jerry Adams, Adams' improbable oh, cookbook. I knew that. Jer- oh, I knew that Jerry Adams wrote a cookbook. Yeah, he had this. Yeah, there was right. a, a bush that handed it to him in the advertisement from it and stuff. So contemporary Irish politics. That's where. That's where I'm at. <laughs> what was that movie with Jerry? I mean, it didn't have them in it, but it, it portrayed Jerry Adams oh. talking to the, the the Protestant guy. They, you know, the ne- negotiations. Wait. Not Mike McGuinness. That's the no, opposite. No, no, the, the um, No, you know the the Protestant firebrand and Ian Paisley. Ian Paisley. Paisley. Yeah. So there was a movie, a, a drama with based on dialogues between Paisley and mm. that guy. It was a BBC 
drama, I think, rather than the movie, wasn't it? Or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, I think uh, it was I do know the movie you're talking about. I feel yeah. like it was a movie. Yeah. Anyway, um, um, it, was, it was good, I thought. Anyway. It was also, and we end on a very Christmassy note because, of course, one of my favourite tweets ever is Jerry Adams complaining about not being able to get his Christmas lights on and someone replying, surely you know someone who can fit a timer. <laughs> 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 so, ha- happy Christmas. Uh, yeah, happy well, Christmas. I do, I do have to do the, you know, the important thing of just tallying the scores. So, just, just for no, it's all, it's all just for fun, Chris. It's just for fun. It's Christmas. It's just for fun. It was just a luck, Chris. Don't, you don't need to tally the scores. Nobody cares. Well, look, Matt, the important thing is, uh, let's take my score with a handicap, you know, make it fair. And then, you know, you're not that far behind. That's the important thing. The important thing is, Matt finishes with 11.5 out of some number and i finish on 15.5 which is higher uh, substantially higher and that's that's the most important thing that was great helen you you are the quiz master genuinely so uh people people should pay you significant amounts of money for that um other people not us but yeah well the better man won chris so just I want you to hold the knowledge of your victory. Yeah, well, I, do, I do think you're. I think you're right, Matt. I think the real victory is having listened to Lex Friedman's morning routine, and then they let it slide like the Elven poetry in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Just your eyes just exactly. slide over it. Don't exactly. retain any of that information. The real victory is living uh, is living well, Helen, and um, and I feel like uh, you know um, we can't score that, Chris, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I do also thank you, Helen, for limiting the amount of embarrassing contemporary Irish knowledge questions that you included, because that that was worried. <laughs> that, that question, if you continued along that vein of questioning, I, I, I may have had technical difficulties interrupt the call. So, um, yeah, that, but, but that's good. That's good. So, look, we learned things. We find out things about gurus, and we have established that Hello, Your Series is very good. It should be best considered a supplement to long-form podcasts by middle-aged men. Uh, that's, yeah. that's really the message that we want to take away yeah. at the, the end. It was, it was very big of you to come on, Helen, to um, <laughs> concede that. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> True. Just, you know... Yeah. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Like that's how I feel about my podcast series. No, it's been very nice, and I, want, I do want to say a genuine thank you to both of you for having been very generous about it. Because um, it was it was a worry to me that I was I was trampling all over your terrain. But it turns out that actually there are many gurus in the sea, and enough for everybody to point at and go, "Oh, that's a bit weird. What's he doing? What's that man doing on the internet?" Yeah. Exactly. We don't need to have any fishing controls or disputes like England had with Norway or whatever about the cod. Um, you know, I mean. And I think you should come back and be a regular guest because I think, you know, that role would be a fitting, you know, end to to your arc. Career, your career <laughs> arc. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Matt. It's like my retirement gig. We'd love to I would, um, yeah. I, would, I would love to come back. There is the only the slight possibility that I would have to subject myself to more of more of this content and i just can't listen at, even at two times speed i don't know how you do it chris i just i fit, why can't people write things down like the old days that was better in my Matt, one thing that you should know is uh, helen's condition for supplying me the crack cocaine of podcasts which you know i i consumed like a vampire bat is <laughs> she would supply 
the episodes for the series early for me to consume if I listened at times one speed. <laughs> that was the that was the deal, and uh, that's that's tough. But I did do that. I did do that. So yeah, look at that. That was a trade off. I know, but we had genuinely like we have we employed a composer to make original music for the series. We got a very good sound designer who. Occasionally had to be reined in from putting slightly too many sound effects in, but was a, just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And then I was like, Chris, you are not listening to this. It's like, so chipmunk speed. I, it's, an, it's an insult. It's an insult to everyone involved in this. You can do it to Joe Rogan. I don't care about that. That's fine. But do it to the, B, to the BBC, Chris. No. <laughs> There's a thing that like all of the themes for all of the podcasts for me are at times two speed, right? Like, so anytime I hear them at normal, it's, it just sounds really wrong. Like everything has moved slowly and I've never heard most of the theme tunes for podcasts at normal speed. So that is, that's a thing. And so uh, there, one, one an anecdote to finish high off brand, but, um, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on Helen. Um, we, we will definitely have you back when we can think of a reason to trap you, but, um, everybody should go listen to the series and thank you very much for the quiz thank you where where can people find you <laughs> uh probably <laughs> here as it turns out like i've put him, yeah <laughs> here um no uh, the atlantic uh, obviously i'm a staff writer there i have a sub stack because that's the law now uh and yeah and wherever you find your podcasts i believe is what they say yeah you have a podcast again that's right welcome welcome to the podcast ecosystem all right so matt i i'm sure i'll talk to you soon enough so I'll push this button now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Helen. Bye.